Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the 2012 Circle of Film Awards in today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? A whole new world. What is this? That is right. Today we journey back to 2012 uh, to revisit some classic films, some really good movies that... Uh, deserve accolades and respect and attention and uh, a spotlight shown on them, uh, even though it's six years later. And that's okay. You know, like, I, like I've been doing, I am progressively taking a look at older years and trying to flesh out the films I've seen from those years to best uh, represent my uh, personal picks to win uh, the categories that I, I have decided upon and I've done this we've done this from 2013 through 2017 right now uh, back in August I did the 2013 awards uh, November was the schedule for the 2012 and then in February end of February right before the Oscars come out I will do my 2018 awards and uh, catch up to date and then between the 2018 and 2019 awards, we will go back to 2011 and 2010 and then look at the 2010s as a whole and assess what uh, the best fil films and performances and effects and scores and songs and so on and so forth uh, of the decade were, in my opinion, uh, you know, using the winners from each year. So this year we have 20. 12. Uh, obviously, we are looking back on this, so we know how the Oscars played out uh, with this year. It was a pretty good year, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, let me just pull up the list of winners that the Oscars selected, and uh, we'll kind of give us a little bit of context and see how much my, my choices diverge. So this was Argo. Best Picture winner, Argo Year. Uh, there were nine Best Picture nominees. Argo, Amour, Beasts of the Southern Wild, Django Unchained, Les Mis, Life of Pi, Lincoln, Silver Linings Playbook, and Zero Dark Thirty. Ang Lee won Best Director for Life of Pi. Daniel Day-Lewis won his third Oscar for Lincoln. Jennifer Lawrence won for Silver Linings Playbook. Anne Hathaway, Les Mis, Christopher Waltz, Django Unchained, uh... Django Unchained won original screenplay, Argo won adapted, so on and so on and so on. Uh, a good year. I, I was very overall pleased with how the year went out, went and, and shook out, uh, but there are definitely some, some big distinctions that I would make. Uh, first of which, Argo, 2012 Best Picture winner, not going to be mentioned at all this episode once we start talking about the awards. Not once. It is not nominated for any category, and I think it's a, a good movie. Uh, I just think it's also, you know, just fine. You know, I think there's there's nothing outstanding about it, and that's that's it. So, uh, 
yeah, going to be something new, something interesting, something some something unique films uh, at play here, and hopefully they if if hopefully if you haven't seen them you will be enticed to watch them check them out see what they're about and uh if you have seen them you are more than welcome to agree and disagree and i would love to hear why and why not so uh, that being said as is customary uh, i will now transition with a uh, medley a transitional medley of this year's best original song nominees. Here we go. this year, I mean this episode, the order of categories that I will talk about and announce and declare a winner in will go as follows. Tactile effects, special effects, score, lead actor, director, original song, uh, supporting actor, screenplay, scene, and finally picture. Uh, all 10 categories, five nominees in each one except for the acting categories which each get 10 nominees. Uh, And then at the very end, uh, a little bit of uh, statistical analysis uh, showing uh, as much as possible, I guess, as I can think of to comment on. That being said, let us jump in to the first category. And our first category is Best Tactile Effects. And the nominees are The Avengers. Django Unchained, The Hunger Games, Les Miserables, and Lincoln. And uh, as I did last time, uh, I don't know if I did it two times ago, but uh, what I, I, I liked doing it this way, but I will talk about each film and its uh, relationship to this category in order from bottom to top. So, starting with number five in the tactile effects race, we have Les Miserables. Uh, So breaking down the tactile effects category, this is loosely defined as costume design, makeup and hairstyling, production design, and sound. Sound. So this is a lot, mostly the things that you could tangibly touch, mostly the things that you could see if they were shooting at the same, uh, with you standing next to the shot. And uh, here, if you could you know, if you were staying there, uh, for the mo- for the most part, loosely defined, uh, as I always kind of caveat. Uh, so, tactile effects. Uh, Les Mis uh, looks great. I think it's a great looking movie. Uh, the costumes are pretty strong throughout. Uh, just the 
the rags that we see very early in the movie, you know, everybody you know, dressed at the inn, you know, and those kind of speak to the production design as well. Um, where, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen and, and Helena Bonham Carter at the inn and, and that just, it looks so authentic. You know, the, the, the production design had to do a great job of establishing a lot of different structures and a lot of different locations to present this as... Uh, you know, a real European country, hundred, you know, hundred, I don't know, I don't know how many years ago Les Mis takes place, 150, 150, longer than that, maybe, 200, uh, 300, I'll stop guessing, uh, and, you know, to suitably fit into that time period, uh, all of these elements, costume, makeup, hairstyling, production design, they have to work uh, in conjunction with each other, so, uh, Les Mis, kind of a lot of pressure put on uh, these departments to give the film this authentic feel. Now, the film itself uh, uh, takes a lot of time. It goes through time pretty quickly. Uh, you have uh, at least you know 50, what, 20 years pass because the, the girl that grows up to be Amanda Seyfried uh, is not born at the very beginning of the movie and by the end she's Amanda Seyfried so you also have to track uh, the age mostly on Hugh Jackman uh, and um, Russell Crowe I don't I don't I think they're the primary characters who actually visibly age in the film that I, I didn't find to be quite as perfectly done as I think the costumes look as I think the production design is pretty strong I it, where it's not uh, practical I, I think the the illusion starts to break down and I think uh, it does end up having a little bit of a Beauty and the Beast feel live action Beauty and the Beast feel of like a soundstage almost but more time most of the time most of the time it it perfectly creates this atmosphere and looks pretty great in the process. So that's number five, Les Mis. Number four is The Hunger Games. Uh, so Hunger Games, uh, kind of a, obviously a very, very different style of film. You know, this is a futuresque, future, futuresque uh, location, country. You know, it's, it's Pan Am, it's the United States, but it's, it's, a very alternate reality of what we are now, kind of. And what struck, what strikes me as far as the tactile effects go is that you end up with a huge set piece of this film taking place uh, in the actual games themselves. And uh, it looks pretty great. Uh, in my opinion, you know, everything that we see Jennifer Lawrence doing, uh, running through all these trees and, uh, you know, the, um, the cornucopia at the center and, and everything that revolves around that. I, I think a lot of it is really well structured, really well built and looks pretty fantastic. Now, I, I don't know exactly what distinction is, would be made between what was actually there and what was a CGI effect added in later. I have a vague idea. I, I uh, loosely 
looking at it and and you know, kind of just eyeballing what I can determine. Uh, I also haven't seen this movie in quite a few years, so memory, you know, not perfect as far as this is concerned. Doing the best with what I have. Uh, other than that, uh, this, when we get to the capital, the makeup and hairstyling, the costume design is on point. Uh, representing these lavish colors, uh, these uh, exaggerated designs, and just, you know, from Stanley Tucci to uh, Elizabeth Banks, like, it, it's obnoxious, but in a great way for this movie. Uh, I, I really enjoyed how kind of, you know, I think a, a lesser movie doesn't go the full distance with these things. And I, I really appreciated the fact that The Hunger Games went this far, went this deep, and, and took this many uh, strides to really pull this off. And uh, it, it's really appreciated. Um, but yeah, I think... Uh, I think the costume and... Costumes definitely the best of the of these things for the Hunger Games. Uh, I think the sound is really strong. I, I didn't really talk about the sound in Les Mis. Uh, it's a musical, so there's it has to be a good sound in it, but I didn't find it you know to stand out quite so much. Whereas in the Hunger Games, there are a lot of distinct elements going on, uh, you know, from a bow and arrow to weapons to the sound of the cannons in the games themselves. Uh, you have Tucci as this announcer, interviewer, radio, television host guy who, and, and so like balancing that um, soundscape with you know the audience and, and you know so on and so forth. All of these things are uh, add just additional layers on layers on top of other layers to the, this movie and it's it's, necessary requirements for pulling off immersion and they succeed i think it does a really good job with all of these things and i approved of it so that's number four the hunger games number three is the avengers uh the avengers bringing together all of marvel's heroes into one movie it was incredibly big it was incredibly audacious and they they knocked it out of the park and it's a movie that looks good uh even the special effects are really good uh but we're focusing on the tactile effects so costume design uh they're superheroes they're all wearing superhero costumes uh, but even outside of that i think the contemporary dress i don't know why that doesn't get more recognition I, I think it's I mean it's not flashy but superhero costumes flashy uh, makeup and hairstyling a lot of work goes into those sorts of things in order to make our heroes and make that uh, our villains in some instances appear disheveled appear hurt uh, scruffed up uh, beaten battered etc 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 uh, production design, obviously a lot of CGI in this movie, and, and so production design definitely where the, the segment of this category where the Avengers falters a little bit, but even still, uh, you know, looking at 
like Tony Stark's tower and and his his workplace and things places like that. Uh, some of the not CGI locations they use to uh, film for New York, uh, but production design nothing spectacular in the Avengers. Sound, on the other hand, uh, you know, I mentioned this was a big thing for the Hunger Games, but it's probably even more prominent here in the Avengers. You have lasers and the sound of Cap's shield and Clint's arrow and uh, you have Hulk and Thor and Loki and all these alien invaders and the huge sky beam thing and the giant metal worm and, and all these different creatures and things that are making noise that doesn't really exist because we don't have these things. And so creating these sounds and, and lacing them into the film and making everything sound real, authentic, you know, not fake or cartoony uh, as you might expect given the circumstances and the truths and the realities at stake. Uh, really, it really works. Great sound. Great sound. And so number three is The Avengers. Number two, our runner-up for Best Tactile Effects 2012, Django Unchained. Django Unchained. It's another period piece, uh, so costume design in full effect. Production design, very strong as well. Uh, pro uh, creating these um, slavery plantations and, and the these huge rich houses that uh, the owners lived in is it, it looks fantastic. Uh, the sound, uh, the sound is is good. It's not exceptional, but it's very good. It's competent. It's not detracting from the film at all. Uh, it's primarily the other three categories for Django Unchained, uh, and it's. It just, it simply looks brilliant. And, uh, you know, we, there's the, the the scene with, like, the entire KKK group. And, you know, they, you know, they're all on horses. And, and you know, they have you know, the get up, the, the perfect costuming presented in that way. And then on the other side, you have Jamie Foxx and Christoph Waltz. And they are really presented, you know, as these uh, many, many decades ago characters who could have existed. And, you know, Jimmy Fox in this blue, and, and he, uh, it, 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 it does a fantastic job of presenting his character as elevated. Uh, you know, the costumes themselves elevate his status as a person uh, in this movie, in this time period, when, you know, more often than not, uh, far more often than not, I would assume, uh, he would be a slave. And yet, we don't watch this movie even knowing the fact that, you know, we're going to these different plantations, they are buying and freeing and... Uh, interacting with slaves from one scene to the next, but we never see Jamie Foxx in this movie as someone who isn't where he's supposed to be. And I think because he's wearing these clothes that so visibly elevate his status by their colors, by uh, the neatness, by the, the design, I think 
the costume to, to use this as like a fine example uh, have, have did a fantastic job with this movie and presenting it and displaying it in a way that is conducive to what the viewers can see so uh, number two tactile effects is Django Unchained which means the number one the best tactile effects of 2012 goes to Lincoln Steven Spielberg's uh, Abraham Lincoln biopic there's a lot of great things going on in this movie. First and uh, first and foremost, as far as the tactile effects go, again, period pieces, they do very, very well in the costume design category. Uh, Lincoln is no exception. It feels exactly like it, it probably was. And it's a testament to the commitment of the team to make sure that they got the you know the stitching right and and the the colors and you know representing the two political parties or uh, you know making the wigs and the clothing uh, and then further beyond that you have makeup and hairstyling and this was a completely different way of What's the, it's it's even it's more it's it's a very different approach hundred years ago to do makeup and hairstyling than it is now and the style was different the things you had to use uh, was very different the products and figuring out a way because a lot of those things don't really exist anymore you can't just go to the store and buy you know makeup from the eighteen hundreds. And, you know, this is kind of, you can apply this to Django Unchained, you can apply this to Les Mis as well. I think it is the be better in Lincoln. But having that, the ability to use modern implements to create an, um, uh, a, a, a period piece effect, for lack of a, uh, is not easy. It's, it's not at all. Uh, production design. Lincoln uh, goes through a bunch of beautiful looking set pieces and from the uh, you know the uh, table the, the the room that he uses to kind of address his uh, confidants and the the aesthetic behind it, all the tiny implements that are added around him and in in the room and the halls and the kitchen and every every aspect of the house that he he lives in and then you go over to the uh courtroom where everything is argued and decided and uh watching the senators discuss things and how uh the benches and the elevated platforms and the balcony above them and all these things come into play there's the scenes with lincoln out in the battlefield interacting with uh the soldiers and how everything there is is presented and displayed it's all culminates so brilliantly uh final and then finally the sound element of things really gets to uh, you know there's nothing that i can remember all these years later uh, about the sound that really sticks out to me but i will say that when you're dealing with a movie there are definitely scenes in the courtroom where you have people talking over each other, you have people interrupting and, and 
um, fighting verbally with each other. And in order to make those scenes uh, audibly soothing or, or audibly able to parse through them audibly takes uh, a very fine touch to present things in such a way where you know one voice doesn't just swallow up another unless you know you want that but giving each voice its own sort of heartbeat uh, within the context of the scene in a sense uh, you know adjusting the levels there so that they they work they they mesh well together uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, we don't really get into a lot of the battles in this movie, but, you know, just the the peripheral sounds of the army traipsing back and forth and horses and animals and, uh, you know, I, I think the most iconic shot and, and like split second of this movie for me is the, the moment when Daniel Day-Lewis pounds his fist on the table uh, with you know three or four of his advisors around him and you know that even getting that that simple you know fist pounding a wooden table noise is you know it sounds great it's a great sounding movie so best tactile effects lincoln lincoln uh moving on to the next category we have best special effects and the nominees are The Cabin in the Woods, Life of Pi, Looper, Moonrise Kingdom, Skyfall. Uh, so special effects, again, loosely translated to visual effects, animation, film editing, and cinematography. And number five, best special effects, is The Cabin in the Woods. Uh, scrapes a nomination out of this category from 2012 the cabin in the woods it really comes down to a single scene uh and that single scene well, i guess two scenes really there's one scene in the movie where we get this huge wide out zoom of our intrepid heroes trapped in a very small box and when the camera pulls out we see that there are hundreds of boxes each with its own devious creature monster killing implement inside uh, and the animation and effects that they had to use to create all of these different creatures put them all in the same scene have all of them acting as if they are in a confined space but all of them next to each other it's very impressive uh, the second moment is far more impressive in my mind when our intrepid heroes release all of these creatures and, and demons and monsters from these contained spaces at the same time. And we see as dozens and dozens of them uh, flood out of the walls and the elevator and through everywhere, uh, simultaneously like bumping into each other and pushing past each other and trying to kill things is really kind of overwhelming from a visual effects perspective 
you know, it's kind of just like vomiting CGI onto the screen. And yet in Cabin of the Woods, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't seem like you've just watched, uh, you know, tw- 300 men in green suits run past you and then they were colored in later. You know, it actually does look like these creatures, these monsters, do the things that they're doing. And to do that with so many of them and to present so wide a, a, a spectrum of creature this way, it takes time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of skill. Uh, as far as the, uh, the other aspects, you know, the cinematography is good. I, I don't find that there's anything very exceptional about the cinematography in The Cabin in the Woods. It looks good. Uh, it looks fine. Uh, the film editing is a little bit above average. I think when you have to balance the kids at this cabin in the woods as well as you jump back to Bradley Whitford uh, at uh, the offices and you know the editing is such a way where we don't really know what they're doing at these offices at the first at the start of the movie and that is revealed to us as time progresses uh, and Richard Jenkins. Uh, whose name I was trying to remember, Richard Jenkins and Bradley Whitford uh, at the offices, and then intersplicing the two of them, and then event- ultimately, you know, cutting in uh, events that are happening in other countries where the same thing is taking place, and they're monitoring these uh, these these awful creatures and horrible things in these foreign places as well, and and just kind of balancing the the screen time out in a way that doesn't over-attach you to one thing and brings you up to speed on another right when you need to be, uh, is it's not exceptional, but it is, in my opinion, above average. So number five special effects is The Cabin in the Woods. Number four is Looper. Looper, a sci-fi film, so special effects kind of come into play pretty substantially. Uh, it is... I really like this movie quite a bit, and I think the film editing and the cinematography are a particular standouts, uh, creating this foreign future world where people are tasked with killing people from the future, uh, ultimately themselves, and seeing uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, you know, made up as a young Bruce Willis is pretty pretty fascinating. But the best effects don't really come into play in this movie until the second half. Uh, once Emily Blunt's character and her son enter the picture, you know, we see a lot of these supernatural things happen. There's a scene uh, in a cornfield where uh, the world is not the world but but everything is kind of lifted into the air including Emily Blunt and Bruce Willis uh there's a lot of things going on in that sequence and you know I imagine that Blunt and Willis were you know on wires or something like that but it looks so real you know and that's kind of the point of visual effects and a lot of technical elements of a movie you know you want the thing you're working on to look, feel, sound, 
seem real. And if it does, you have succeeded. Uh, and in this instance, in this situation, I personally think that Looper has succeeded in its visual effects and in presenting them in a way that feels authentic and that feels meaningful and that feels like they really happened. And uh, yeah, uh, and and then not really a lot of animation. You know, that's not one that really comes up in Looper, but the film editing, you know, cutting between uh, the character of Joe as Joseph Gordon-Levitt, as Bruce Willis, whether he's in, you know, stateside or in Shanghai, uh, you know, whether he's, we're in one timeline or another, whether we're following the characters before or after they meet each other or don't meet each other or know things or don't know things and, you know, ma managing the timelines in a time travel sci-fi movie requires a lot of good f film editing, you know, Memento and, and Inception and things like that are, are testaments to you, know, you need great editing to make your movie make sense when you're playing with time so loosely. Uh, Looper doesn't quite play with time as... Uh, I think I think the timelines in Looper are a little bit more straightforward uh, than most time travel movies, but uh, even still, you know, it, it's still a test... It's still a difficult thing to do, and I think Looper does it very, very well. So number four... Special effects, Looper. Number three is Skyfall. So Skyfall, new James Bond movie. I say new, but you know we're close to getting the second sequel to Skyfall at this point. Is it's not very visually driven as an effects movie. All right, so. Most of its reasoning for being in this category is the cinematography and the editing, which are top-notch. Uh, this is a film that looks incredible. It has just some breathtakingly crisp and gorgeous scenes in it. Some shots that will really lavish the the countryside or the townhouse or the barn or wherever it is that they're located at that time uh, you have action sequences that are invigorating you know it's it's a pulsing film with with you know a really fast beating heart and then and and you know the camera keeps up with it the cam the editing keeps up with it for those sequences and then eventually <clears throat> you'll hit a scene where it is just Daniel Craig and, uh, you know, Judy Dench having a conversation. And the heartbeat slows, the pace of the movie slows, but the, the, the cinematography and the editing is still so incredibly dynamic uh, without sacrificing uh, a complementary pace. So even though what's happening on the screen is moving very slowly. And even though what's happening with the camera and the editing is very dynamic and very, um, very, what's the word I'm looking for here? I was gonna say harsh, but that's, that's really not what I mean. Dynamic, we'll say dynamic, even though, and the camera and the editing is very dynamic, it doesn't feel like the two are at odds with each other. You know, these are things that are working in conjecture in conjunction with each other to create something 
new. And I, I think that that's brilliant. I think that that's pretty, pretty incredible. So number three, Skyfall for special effects. Number two, number two uh, for special effects, the runner-up for 2012 is Moonrise Kingdom. I'm a big Wes Anderson fan, and Moonrise Kingdom is not my absolute favorite movie of his, but it is a very, very good movie, and uh, I think of the, at least of the movies on this list of five, is the one I've seen most recently, and it just, I, I'm just, I know that all of his movies have kind of this same conceit of the, uh, you know, the, the symmetry that he puts in all of his shots, the, you know, sort of swivel motion of the camera when we go from, you know, looking straight ahead to the right, to the, to behind us, to the left, he has these tricks in all of his movies, and I just, I never, I, I, I don't get tired of them, I, I don't find them wasted and useless, you know, this isn't some sort of sweeping low angle from Michael Bay, this isn't, um, Oh, what what's the term uh, that that J.J. Abrams uses all the time? Uh, the the not burst. Is it burst? Lens flare. They're not like J.J. Abrams lens flares. You know, the, these are just kind of stock techniques that I, I I imagine like anyone can do this. You know, you can just set the camera in a way where you know you've three trees on each side of the frame and you have two characters on each side of the frame but Wes Anderson does it to the nth degree with so, such meticulousness that you know you you can't even pick holes in the frames of the movie it not only shows um and expertise of his craft, but it also shows that it also lends itself to being incredibly complementary to the types of films that he makes. So these are all quirky comedies for the most part. You know, they have elements of other movies in them, elements of romance or genres rather, elements of romance, elements of drama, and and so on. But they are quirky comedies, and this style is just perfect for that so i i think you know the film the editing and the cinematography in in moonrise kingdom is exceptional it's it's amazing uh the animation not really anything there visual effects again not really anything there uh which is a big reason why both moonrise kingdom and skyfall kind of fall short of of taking the win which goes to 2012 special effects winner, Life of Pi. Life of Pi, Ang Lee's uh, journey film, uh, adventure journey film, uh, as uh, a young boy spend most of the movie follows a young boy on a small boat uh, along with some, some animals that have escaped alongside with him, and uh, visual effects you know, are are pretty, pretty special. You know, this is 
kind of paving the way back in 2012 for things to come, like the Jungle Book. Uh, you know, in um, four years uh, between Life of Pi and Jungle Book, you know, four years in the visual effects world is a long time. Uh, you know, you look at, you know, between 98 and 2002 or, uh, you know, even, you know, it's 2018 now. You look back at 2014 special effects and there's a pretty prominent dis- uh, difference, uh, especially if you look at a ser- series of films, like, for example, Planet of the Apes movies. There's like three years between them, I think, three or four. Uh, looking at the progression between each of them as far as visual effects is concerned, it's it's huge they, they they make huge strides from one film to the next and life of pi was just just an outstandingly visually realized film uh this is you know they obviously were not in the middle of the ocean with nothing around them there was obviously not a, a real tiger on the boat with him and yet you watch it and you know that and and your eyes are saying, yeah, that's exactly what was going on. We now move on to the best original score category. And the nominees are Benjamin Britten and Alexander Desplat for Moonrise Kingdom. Johnny Greenwood, The Master. Henry Jackman, Wreck-It Ralph. Ennio Morricone. Morricone? Dragon, <laughs> Dragon, Django Unchained, and Dan Romer and Ben Zeitlin for Beasts of the Southern Wild. Uh, a lot of adding a lot of new movies into the list here. Uh, you know, we have Moonrise Kingdom nominated after its nomination in special effects. Uh, we have Django Unchained nominated for both score and tactile effects, but that's the only overlap. Uh, so now. Uh, the score, and with one exception uh, in on this list, this is going to be a rough, rough category to talk about because I, it's been so long since I've heard the scores to these movies. Again, with one exception. And despite the fact that I've seen Moonrise Kingdom most recently of these five films, that's not the one I remember the best. So starting with number five is Beasts of the Southern Wild, uh, a film I'm particularly fond of, and one that I think deserves a lot of recognition and a lot of praise for a lot of its a lot of its elements, and uh, it, it has so many merits uh, outside of the score category. However, uh, score is a huge, huge um, component of this movie. It is a pretty dour film, but it has some fantastical realism elements in it, and the score does pretty much everything it needs to to emphasize these these shifts in in tone these shifts in location these shifts in perspective and it does so without feeling conventional without feeling like it's tricking you you know you're not listening to the score and the score isn't saying all right it's time to cry no 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 it's just the score is only amplifying the tensions and emotions in the scenes themselves. You are, you know, you're reacting to what's happening on the scene, and the score is playing out alongside that. Uh, 
you know it is very complementary rather than the the uh, source as it were of the response that you have to the film uh, yeah it, it's the score it's the score of Beasts of the Southern Wild it's a great sounding film number five Beasts of the Southern Wild number four uh, previously mentioned Moonrise Kingdom uh, the score in this uh, like most Wes Anderson films is in my opinion uh, a little it's it's very understated uh, it, it doesn't it's never overbearing it doesn't try to as most good scores don't you know it doesn't try to influence your reaction uh, in, in an unearned way I guess I'll say it that way. You know, when you see something on screen, uh, the score doesn't, you know, point it out or, or, or gesture to it or make a big to-do about what's going on. It simply ebbs and flows as the movie progresses. And Moonrise Kingdom, a movie where, you know, we see, we get a lot of these almost montage sequences between our two protagonists who exchange letters with each other and you know a lot of Wes Anderson's style is in the fact that it's clipped and cut together very abruptly in a way that makes it feel quirkier and funnier and it does so very well and, and I think in Moonrise Kingdom, the score is tantamount to that success. So, number four is Moonrise Kingdom. Number three, moving quickly here, because uh, I really don't have much to say about most of them. Uh, the Master. The Master is number three. Johnny Greenwood, uh, his score for The Master. Uh, this is not, uh, I guess... Uh, I wouldn't say it's not a technically, you know, exceptional film. It's definitely a technically strong movie, but the score is easily the most, the the strongest aspect of its technical side. And I don't. That's it. That's it. It's just it's got a very good score. I, I, look. Uh, Full disclosure, like I listened to these scores uh, when I was going through creating the the, the nominations for this year. Jeez, um, it was almost two. Eh, well, it wasn't that long ago, was it? Well, yeah, it was like a year and a half ago that I was putting this all together for the very first time, and yeah, it's been a long time. So uh, number two, the runner-up for best original score is Django Unchained. Django Unchained. Uh, Runner-up in its second category, The Night. Django Unchained sounds great. It really does. Uh, Ennio Morricone is a fantastic composer, and he does a splendid job with the score for Django Unchained. And finally, the winner (laughs) is Wreck-It Ralph. So I mentioned this is the only score I actually recall with any certainty. Uh, I've used the score of it in, in, I did a short segment that was played on the Cinerealist uh, podcast 
um, man, all, all over a year ago, I guess. Um, but I remember I under I laced the bottom the background of my of the recording with clips uh, with audio clips of um, Henry Jackman's score from Wreck It Ralph, and this score is kind of the perfect blend of Mario Kart and uh, like like a Pixar movie, right? It sound it's got a lot of that uh, just like that sort of repetitive kind of sounds to it and then but but it also gives it enough of uh, uh, depth and um, uh, yeah, there's a word I'm looking for here that makes perfect sense and I just cannot pull it out of my head it it fills the sound better than, you know, Mario Kart is, you know, the, and the music along those lines is very, you know, it's great in a moment, but you don't really listen to it outside of that, and it doesn't really give you emotion alongside the so the tune and the sound. Whereas in Wreck-It Ralph, Jackman does lace uh, emotion into those tracks, and he can turn it, uh, you know, t I don't know, I imagine like turning a dial, you know, he can adjust the the sound perfectly to encapsulate exactly what's going on in the movie. And, you know, we can shift on a dime from, this is just kind of a scene where they're racing against each other to, oh no, this is, this scene means a lot more than that. If you're not paying attention, you know, look at, look at what's happening, look at closer to what's going on, look, look at around you and, and understand and recognize the tensions at play and the drama at work and the relationships being adjusted and forged and broken in the moment. And, you know, it, it just works in such perfect harmony with this fantastic animated incredible film that just I don't know it works despite itself almost it, it, it doesn't seem like it should be as good as it is and I think a huge part of that is the score making you transporting you into what really does feel like a video game uh, so I, I really I really like Jackman's score I love Henry Jackman's score for Wreck-It Ralph so 2012 best original score Henry Jackman for Wreck-It Ralph. We now move on to Best Lead Actor. Best Lead Actor. Uh, pretty early in the, in the episode to do uh, a big category like this, but uh, let's let's do it anyway. There are 10 nominees for both acting categories, uh, and the nominees for Best Lead Performance are Verl Batens, The Broken Circle Breakdown. Jessica Chastain, Zero Dark Thirty. Daniel Day-Lewis, Lincoln. Christina Flutur, Beyond the Hills. Greta Gerwig, Frances Ha. Johan Heldenberg, The Broken Circle Breakdown. Jennifer Lawrence, Silver Linings Playbook. Mads Mikkelsen, The Hunt. Joaquin Phoenix, The Master. And Denzel Washington, Flight. It's a lot of names. 
a lot of foreign names. Uh, big year for foreign language films, uh, which I'm very, very happy about. Uh, and we're going to start with number 10, uh, which is, uh, let me just make sure here, uh, Johan Heldenberg, The Broken Circle Breakdown. Now, The Broken Circle Breakdown is a foreign language film. Uh, it actually is directed by the same, same guy who directed Beautiful Boy, which came out this year in 2018. And it is a folk musical uh, drama about a couple. Uh, Verl Batens is the female of the couple she, you know, will get to. Uh, and Johan Heldenberg is the male of the couple. Uh, during the film, they sing, they cry, they laugh. Uh, it's a very problematic relationship for, for a one very, very big reason, uh, which is kind of the focal point of the film. And Heldenberg is raw in this movie. You know, I, I think he is, he, he's, I've seen him in, in other films after this. Um, let me see if I can track a list of those down. Oop, no, I guess I can't. That's a total lie. Of course I can. Uh, he was in The Zookeeper's Wife uh, as well. And one other film. Uh, a movie called 55 Steps, which came out in 2017, starring Helena Bonham Carter and Hilary Swank. Uh, Broken Circle Breakdown, uh, you know, they... Bat Battens and Heldenberg married a married couple who front this very successful, very popular folk band. Their music is incredible. Their relationship is passionate. And it is... The crux of the film revolves around the loss of their child. And that event, you know, threatens to divide them. You know, it's a very traumatic experience. And watching Heldenberg kind of suffer through this you know he has a very pained uh reaction to this story or to this to this event and it really does wreak havoc on him physically and emotionally and you can see that on his face you know far more than battens you know he is tearing up in almost every other scene. Now, the narrative of the film is is such that it flashes back and forth between um, after the incident and before the incident, and the timeline is very disrupted uh, throughout. But it, you know, watch see which which really strikes home the range that these actors had to go through to hit the joy in the past, followed by the instant uh, tragedy that they have to experience, and then you flash forward and you're kind of working through the depression and the agony that lingers and continues to exist long after um, the loss. And, and it's it's just 
it, I don't know, it really hurts me. It really hurts watching this movie. And I think both of these leads are great in the film. Um, I have Heldenberg below uh, Batten's, and I, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm saying Batten's right, Batten's, 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 not sure. But suffice to say, uh, it's, it's a powerhouse pairing uh, that the two put on for this film, and I'm very, very taken by Heldenberg and his performance, which is very, very sad. Very sad. So number 10 is Johann Heldenberg. Number 9 is Christina Flutor from Beyond the Hills. This is another foreign language film. And this one uh, is very different from Broken Circle Breakdown. Uh, Beyond the Hills uh, follows two women, uh, one who grew up in an orphanage together. Um, one has since found refuge at a convent in Romania. Uh, the other lives in Germany, goes to visit her friend, and decides, you know, hey, look, something's wrong, something's going on here, you need to leave with me. And the friend's like, uh, no, not doing that. Christina Flutur plays the German friend uh, who, who tries to bring Cosmina Stratton, who plays Wojcita, uh, out of the Romanian convent, and uh, things get kind of crazy. Um, the film really goes to some wild places. Uh, it It's strictly a drama, uh, but once Alina, played by Christina Flutor's character, gets to this convent, things really start to escalate. And it's not exactly... Hmm, man, how do... Flator's performance... I'm trying to avoid, like, the spoilers. There's a lot of stuff that happens in this movie. Uh, her performance is one that has to go through a lot of different stages. Uh, so, if you think about... Uh, let's say, this isn't a horror movie, but if you think about a character in a horror movie who goes from a situation where nothing is happening, nothing is wrong, to they think something could be wrong, to something definitely is wrong, to they can't get away from the thing that is wrong, to succumbing to the thing that is wrong. You know, you have all these different stages throughout the film that the character and actor have to progress through. And Alina is in a very similar situation. And she has she goes to the convent to bring her friend back. And each step of the way, something changes the dynamic of Alina herself, as well as the friendship she has with Wojcita. Uh whether that is the priest who leads the monastery, whether that is uh, Foychita's own feelings, whether that is Alina's own feelings, uh, watching her shift and uh, fluctuate uh, through these different circumstances is 
it's it's so she's so charismatic in this role. Uh, you know, she you are watching you are experiencing this situation through Alina. She is the outsider of this convent, and things start out quite distressing. Uh, things seem horrific, and Alina is, you know, kind of stereotypically like, well, this is ridiculous, you can't stay here. And then the movie shifts, but not in the way that these types of movies generally do. And I really appreciated the fact that this, that, that Beyond the Hills gives this story time to breathe it's a very long movie it's about two and a half hours long um and it really is all about these two women and their relationship with each other as it is consistently affected by all these external influences and i you know voichita's actor cosmina stratton uh, very close to making this list. Uh, very, very close on her own. Christine Flutor, uh, slightly better in my opinion. She has more range to go through by being the character that doesn't start in the convent. And considering like 99% of this movie takes place in the convent, uh, she has a lot of adjusting and uh, understanding to to get through. You know, the film does hit on... Um, exorcisms and sin and the devil and it goes beyond that even and I, I found it to be incredibly engrossing and very very fascinating as a watch and I think Alina uh, played by Christine Flutor is a huge 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 part of that so I'm, I'm she's number nine Christine Flutor from Beyond the Hills which I highly recommend Number eight is Mr. Denzel Washington from Flight. Uh, so Flight, Denzel plays a pilot who does a lot of substances. He's, uh, you know, he has his dealer, John Goodman, and he flies planes, high, drunk, uh, out of his mind. And despite that, he is in an incredible pilot and Denzel is fittingly incredible in the film as the pilot you know he is able to balance the sort of coked out side of his character with the professional like let's get this done let's land this plane let's fly this plane side of his character and it's not an easy it's not an easy scale to to keep balanced uh, and then in about partway through the movie you really start to press down on this relationship situation that he's in with his family with his son uh, and that wrinkles the uh, the 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 character a, a lot in a way that provides Washington with a with a Show, kind of a showcase for for how he can maneuver his way through these treacherous situations. You know, he can go from being drunk and flying a plane to lashing out at his family, to reconciling with his family, to being confronted for his 
substance abuse to this to that to the other and and you know Denzel Washington he is so good at playing these very very confident uh, overly so characters who have these deep flaws and yet the character kind of overlooks them you know he acknowledges what he does but at no point is is his character ever kind of sitting back and saying all right i'll ease up no he's just like i got this and as he quote unquote has this everything crumbles around him and i think that that watching that happen to this character in particular you know watching him this character kind of break throughout this film is is very much made possible by Denzel. I think the film itself definitely has some issues and struggles and, and problematic uh, pacing and, and narrative problems, but I think Denzel is really the big reason why it ends up succeeding almost despite itself. So for me, number eight is Denzel Washington. Number seven is Greta Gerwig from Francis Ha. This is yet another nomination for Greta Gerwig, the most nominated person uh, for the Circle of Film Awards uh, when you include this year, uh, as this is her fifth nomination so far. And she, Francis Ha is a you know indie sort of mumblecore movie. She made it. Uh, with Noah Baumbach, and it, I'll be honest, the first time I watched it, it was good, just good, Uh, definitely didn't have it on my radar to really make an impact on these awards if I was doing them at the time, Uh, however, when I went back to originally kind of set up what this these nominations were going to be. Francis Ha was a movie that, you know, a lot of people herald this film. I had to go back and watch it again. Uh, it's short, so it wouldn't take very long. And I, I just, I needed to kind of confirm that that reaction that I had. Lo and behold, uh, I've seen it twice since that point. And it really is fascinating. I, I'm not going to, it's not a masterpiece of a film, in my opinion, but it is, it's pretty great, and it all, and you know, maybe it's coming back to this sort of after getting, I don't think I'd seen Lady Bird at the time, but I don't think Lady Bird was out yet, but having at least experienced more Greta Gerwig in the, in this, in the interim, going back to Frances Ha, which is pretty much her breakout movie, was fascinating, and I think it's really, really good, and I think there's a really good reason why not only the film, but she is kind of heralded as this prodigy. She is she's perfect in that Wes Anderson kind of way. Uh, you know, she in her performances, and I would say to a lesser degree as a director and writer, primarily in her performances, she gives off that very aloof uh, emotion where you kind of don't think she really cares about anything and it feel it looks like she doesn't have the same human emotions that other people do 
which is a really strange thing to say about anything, any person, but that's kind of how it feels. And she is, you know, that is a character she has played multiple times. And I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think it originated in Francis Ha, but in Francis Ha, you know, what Baumbach is able to get out of her and to kind of ultimately orchestrate the film to be is kind of deconstructing that personality of this all washes off of me. Nothing affects me. I got this under control, flying by the seat of my pants. I'm going to make it work. You can't control me. You can't, you know, get me to do whatever you want me to do. I can do it myself. And Gerwig's character is that person. And throughout the progression of the film reaches impasse after impasse after impasse and cannot, you know, maintain that facade. And watching that all break down is fascinating, you know, as her friends and her relationships all sort of deteriorate around her because of how she is, because of what she is. And I think I think that Gerwig pretty flawlessly pulls that progression off. And it makes the film the film itself very, very good and, and her performance is is pretty outstanding. Uh, I I'm so glad that she's directing. I would love to see her continue acting as well. I hope that continues. And I I just I want more. I just want more. So my number seven is Frances Ha and Greta Gerwig. Number seven. Number six, we return to the Broken Circle Breakdown for Viral Battens. Taking a stab. Uh, if you look on the website or check out the movie, it's spelled... Yeah, it's not... It's not American, so I can't pronounce it. Uh, Viral Battens, as I kind of touched on this already, talking about Johan Heltenberg, uh, he is very raw in the movie. Viral is not approaching the... not having the same emotional responses that her husband does in the film, which is good. I, I don't think she should. I think, you know, we all grieve differently. We all react to sad things differently and her reaction is inward more so than his you know she sort of suppresses these feelings she takes it in and presses it down and tries to cover it up tries to make it you know go away almost and yet every time she turns around he's standing there He's crying, he's sobbing, he's having the emotional reaction, and she's try she can't deal with him feeling the emotions when she can't or doesn't want to. And so I I love how the film plays those two responses against each other. We watch you know, him frustrated that she feels nothing, her frustrated that he won't let her feel nothing, that he keeps reminding her and reminding her and reminding her and reminding her. And so I think there's so much character to mine out of these two two people on the screen. And I think, 
I mean, they're both fantastic in the film. I think Batten's is just a, a little bit better. And that's why she's number seven. Number six. That's why she's number six. Number six, Viral Batten's. Uh, the Broken Sword Breakdown. Highly recommend. Highly recommend. Highly recommend. Number five. Uh, another foreign language film, uh, The Hunt, starring Mads Mikkelsen. Mads Mikkelsen. You may know him from many of his other things. Uh, he was in Doctor Strange as... Uh, I don't remember the name of his character, but he was a bad guy in Doctor Strange. Uh, or you may remember him from Hannibal as the titular Hannibal. Uh, in The Hunt, he plays a teacher uh, who is accused of inappropriate behavior with one of his students. It turns out, I believe he's an elementary school teacher or... Well, they're not in America. I don't know if it's the same term, but his his students are very young, in like the six to eight year range, if I remember correctly. And you know, at you follow, you know, we see the movie from his perspective. He maintains that nothing happened, that there was never any wrongdoing. Uh, I don't know that we. I I don't know how we get deep into the movie before the truth is is revealed, but. Until that happens, you, for the most part, I think, the viewer sympathizes with Mickelson. You know, you sympathize with his uh, honesty. You know, we, we assume that he's right. Which is fascinating because every other person in the movie assumes he's lying. Assumes it's wrong. Why would a child lie about such a thing? And that creates a fantastic uh, conflict as he goes to the supermarket and they refuse to sell him anything you know he shows up to school the next day to teach and he he's suspended he you know is tormented and belittled by everyone around him uh, his best friends his neighbors his family Everyone has immediately looked down on him for a thing that they're not 100% sure he's done, but that they believe that he has done. And exploring that horrific circumstance, that is the film. And Mickelson is so good. You know, he plays a pretty convincing, kind of has it all together, badass, uh, strong Hannibal character on TV. He was a convincing villain. Uh, he is a good convincing villain. You know, he in, in Casino Royale, you know, fantastic villain. But in The Hunt, he is, I mean, effectively the good guy in this movie. He's the protagonist. He's who you're kind of rooting for for most of it. And you you can't, you, you, you fall so hard for the sincerity that he displays when you know he refuses to punch back when someone hits him when he you know he's indignant and hurt by these people who he cared for and who cared about him so instantly turning against him and it's it just it he can't get things under control and I, you know this is a character that I, I wasn't very familiar with Mickelson playing and it's he's incredible he's just incredible in this role 
He, you know, he's a sensible person. He does, you know, he's just trying to live his life and nobody will let him. Uh, when he's suspended, when he's, you know, he's waiting for, okay, well, it's my word against hers right now. What, I, there's, there's no way to prove or disprove what happened or didn't happen. And the frustration, you know, it, you know, when he's, when we are under the impression that, you know, he did, impression that he didn't do any of these things. He didn't do anything. And we know, you know, we're in the same boat he is. Like, we know he can't prove it. And so the further and further the movie goes along, the further and further we watch as Mickelson is beaten and tormented and made fun of, hated. I think that that feeling and that emotion kind of seeps in almost. And you can watch Mickelson kind of absorb and absorb and absorb all of these emotions and pains until he starts to just give in to them. You know, it's to the extent where I, if I if I remember correctly, I believe his family is like, we need to leave, we need to just move, and he's refuses. He, like, no, I the the sort of the truth will set you free kind of a standpoint where some somehow in the back of his mind, you know, he has this this thought, this this notion that everything's going to work out, everything's going to come to light, and how do you the faith he has that that's going to happen is is watching the movie you know you really feel like it's misplaced you really do because it doesn't seem like even if it gets to the point where even if it does come to light so much has happened so much has transpired how how can anything ever go back to how it used to be and Mickelson pulls that off so well he's the perfect sort of guy that gives off this yeah, I'm no hero, but like I'm not a I'm not not evil either and and he he's trying to make the best out of what he's got. And Nicholson, he he's just kind of like an everyman in this movie, and that's different from what I'm used to seeing him in. You know, he has that very distinct those distinctive features. He has that very I don't know how to describe it. He he just it's a very fascinating construction of of his look, really. He's a very distinct person and yet he melts into the background in a sense in this movie and I, it's I'm very impressed by it. So number 5, Mads Mikkelsen, The Hunt. Number 4 from The Master, Joaquin Phoenix. Uh Joaquin Phoenix the master and this is a movie that's going to come up a couple of times after this you know is also stars uh philip seymour hoffman amy adams among others where joaquin phoenix joins this sort of cult directed by paul thomas anderson and he's a very troubled guy 
and slowly kind of falls under the spell of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And watching the two of them, you know, watching watching Hoffman kind of feed off of Joaquin Phoenix's uh, nervousness and need to 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 improve and to solve the problems in his life is pretty pretty scary and on the other side you know watching phoenix kind of cling to this idea to to what hoffman preaches and to what he uh, lives by you know you 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 kind of feel for him in a sense that he's not gonna you you kind of don't think he's ever gonna make it right he phoenix is so schlubby in this movie so down on himself and and even at his highest of highs you know he's still kind of not that awesome not that good (laughs) he's still kind of distressing and disappointing but you kind of you kind of think that at least while he's with Hoffman as bad as a person as Hoffman is in this movie as he's very much uh you know just a bad guy he's given Phoenix something right he's given him a direction and Phoenix you know playing out his character's evolution playing out his character's uh, metamorphosis almost there's a sequence in the middle of the movie between Hoffman and, and Phoenix where the two of them just kind of they, they just they just connect on on a very visceral level and it's powerful it's very powerful but afterward and and for the, through to the end of the film, I, I just Joaquin Phoenix just his his the way he's able to prove and show that even as his character is progressing, he's regressing, in a sense, if that makes any sense. And I think I think if you've seen the movie, it does. But I, maybe if you haven't, it doesn't. Uh, I guess I guess what that is to say is that. Even as we're watching Phoenix's character reach new heights as a person throughout the film, it's like he's walking up MC Escher staircase an MC Escher staircase because when he gets to the top, he's still at the bottom. That's that's kind of what this character feels like, and and it's so so depressing, and. Phoenix, you know, whether it's in her or 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 the master, he he's so fantastic at giving out this very schlubby personality that doesn't seem to have a light at the end of the tunnel always. It's very very sad and Phoenix so good, so good at this. Very very good at this. So my number 4 is Joaquin Phoenix from the master. Number three is Jennifer Lawrence for Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, now, I mentioned uh, she won the Oscar for this. 
this year. But she comes uh, in the bronze medal position for me, for best lead. And she is very, very good in, in this movie. She's very, very good. I think she's, you know, gives one of her best performances. Uh, you know, she's previously been nominated for Mother. Uh, she is... You know, she did not win that year either, but, you know, she is very, very good. She is a strong actor and one that in Silver Linus Playbook, you get to see this kind of, it's kind of like the dark side of the manic pixie dream girl trope, where she kind of is this sort of perfect storm of rebel, sexy, kind of character there's more attributes I, I don't know what they would be but there's more attributes than that and rather than the typical portrayal of that trope being you know oh she's perfect for our protagonist uh bradley cooper no she's not you know she's actually very flawed uh has a lot of issues and as does our our main character uh or our protagonist, rather. They're both leads. And following her kind of... You know, what what I like is that we get to see this relationship destroy itself from both sides in this movie. We get to see Jennifer Lawrence really just ruin everything on her end but at the same time you know cooper is also ruining everything on his end and seeing the two of them exchange barbed words you know watching her integrate herself with his family uh and robert de niro you know seeing you know when they're dancing and you know she is determined absolutely determined to make that work uh yeah it's it's just a it's such a fan. I really like like this movie. It's such a fantastic play on a very you know the stereotypical tropey rom com. And you know this is not necessarily a comedy. It has funny elements, but it's more of a romantic dramedy where we see you know where you would have a typical scene of uh, I don't know some sort of unfortunate mishap that you know draws a lot of laughs in the theater, you know, Silver Linings Playbook takes it the opposite direction. Like, oh, this isn't a comedy, comic scene where we end up with laughter. This is, oh, this is a tragic scene where it ends up with them, you know, breaking up or, you know, something gets broken or somebody gets hurt. Some, you know, we get to see this movie play out in a very different uh, and distinct way. And I think Lawrence is very good at portraying these characters who do have a lot of shit thrown at them and somehow they're able to sort of overcome it you know they have this inner fire that pushes them beyond what normal people most people would would be capable of and i think in this in silver linings playbook i think she is just fantastic in it uh you know she it's 
I, I, man, it'd be close. I don't know. I think this might be slightly better for in my than than Mother for me, personally. But it's very close. Uh, I think she's absolutely fantastic in Silver Linings Playbook and uh, deserved was a worthy recipient uh, of the award. She hits all the right notes. You know, I know that. I, I think I, I believe I've heard criticisms of her being kind of over the top maybe and even if she is like I think it, it's what the character demands and so I think it satisfies exactly what it's supposed to and therefore not a criticism but rather a compliment so uh, for me number three is Jennifer Lawrence At number two uh, number two the runner-up for best lead performer in 2012 is Jessica Chastain from Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, the follow-up to The Hurt Locker, I believe, uh, Zero Dark Thirty, written by Mark Boll, directed by Catherine Bigelow, and starring Jessica Chastain. She is amazing. I, I don't, uh, you know, how much, what else can you really say? She is incredible. She has to deal with all these idiotic men throughout the whole movie who talk down to her and, you know, she just completely owns the film from start to finish. Even when she's, like, absent from the movie for, like, 15, 20 minutes, she is still this lingering force in the background, uh, influencing and impacting everything because even the scenes that she's not in happen only uh, for the most part are only happening because she made them happen and so she's taking she's getting the credit for these moments that aren't even hers and you know that's that's you know talk about leaving your imprint on a movie Jessica Chastain is the 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 pulsing beating heart of zero dark 30 and i think she's uh it's unfortunate unfortunate that she couldn't win for that that uh, this year in 2012 but it is what it is i think she's great i think her dynamic with all the with these you know, with Jason Clark and, and um, oh, I'm not going to remember his name, but uh, Kyle Chandler and so on and so on. You know, she is every bit the equal of these men that are placed in front of her in a higher station than she is in this movie. Uh, and if not, I you know, even going so far as to say, you know, she supersedes them in a multitude of different ways it, it just she she's got you know it's one of the most commanding presences ever seen in a movie and it's just a shame that she had to go up against this year's winner uh, so jessica chastain for zero dark 30 my number two this year's winner uh one of the greatest actors living who has appeared in a fraction of the number of movies as some of the other people on this list who are half his age uh, is Daniel Day-Lewis for Lincoln. He is 
I mean, he, he is Lincoln. It's his movie. He lived as Lincoln. He is Lincoln. There's absolutely nothing about him in this movie that ever gives away that he's not Lincoln. I don't know. I, I, you know, if you've seen the movie, you know, he, it's, it's like watching the president come to life in front of you. This guy who's been dead for decades and decades is, you know, century. You know, he's, he's living and breathing right in front of you. It's, it's unbelievable what he, he has accomplished in this film. You know, when you you're when you're asked to portray a real life person, living or or deceased, you really have. If you're gonna go for the mimicry side of things, where you're trying to pick up on their affectations and tics and habits, uh, when you're trying to pull in their vocabulary and their voice and their mannerisms, uh. To, to, to find, to hit that point where your mimicry goes beyond uh, an impression and becomes an inhabitation, uh, you know, inhabitation, that is so, so satisfying. You know, to, to, ca- to compare this to something like Rami Malek in Bohemian Rhapsody, I don't think it's even close. Never once, only during, I think, the Live Aid performance in Bohemian Rhapsody did I ever feel like Malik had inhabited Freddie Mercury. There's not a single frame of Lincoln where Daniel Day-Lewis wasn't just Lincoln. Yeah, he just, it's just who he was. I don't know. I don't know what else there is to say. He he was Lincoln, and and that's the best performance, uh, lead performance of the year. So, Lincoln, Daniel Day Lewis, best lead, and that's two wins now, combined with tactile effects for Lincoln, two wins, two nominations. All right. Uh, so that is the half. Uh, no, that is the fourth category. Moving on to the fifth category of the night. Um, Another big one, actually. Best Director. And the nominees are... Paul Thomas Anderson for The Master. Catherine Bigelow, Zero Dark Thirty. Ryan Johnson, Looper. Bart Layton, The Imposter. And Joshua Oppenheimer, The Act of Killing. Two, not one, but two documentaries in the best director race this year. And uh, we'll start with number five, which is neither of the documentaries, actually. It's Ryan Johnson for Looper. I mentioned, uh, talking about special effects, that I'm a huge fan of Looper. I really enjoy this movie. I think there's a lot to unpack, a lot of ways to look at it and approach it and, and analyze the movie and what it's trying to say. Uh, I, I love the performances in it. Uh, we haven't gotten to the supporting category, but there is a nominee from Looper in the supporting category when we get there. Ryan Johnson, uh, director of Brick, uh, director of the very polarizing The Last Jedi, 
directed Looper, which he just it's 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 so absolutely obvious to me anyway that this movie is bits of Ryan Johnson and I think that's true with uh, maybe not necessarily the last Jedi but I definitely think that's true with um, Brothers Bloom and with Brick you know and with Looper you know these are movies that really do feel like Ryan Johnson put everything he had into them or even ripped off a piece of himself and that's what the movie is he came up with this story and he pulls it off in such a such a phenomenal way you know time travel movies very difficult to to film uh, and edit especially uh, but when you're looking at the direction the, the where the difficulty comes into play you know Johnson has to determine how this is all going to be displayed right he has to make sure that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is a young Bruce Willis and not just you know go back watch Die Hard 25 times your Bruce Willis no like look at real Bruce Willis and then de-age him as he is now uh, in a very, it's, you know, pick up on his now mannerisms that he didn't have back then when he was making Die Hard, that he didn't, you know, when he was on TV, when he was making, when he was younger. You know, deconstruct who he is. And Ryan Johnson has to oversee that and, and enforce that and encourage that and make that work and make that real which is, fant- uh, you know, uh, mind-boggling. Uh, he has to combine this very, all, all by its own, fascinating plot of you kill people who are sent back in time, what about when that person is you from the future? Like, that in and of, in and of itself is already a phenomenal plot device and... and then he goes beyond that when you introduce the Emily Blunt character and what's happening there and how that plays into everything and how that side of the story amplifies and complicates everything to the point where, all right, we're already in a situation where he doesn't even have the time or ability to explain the time travel of it all, you know, as as evidenced by the diner scene where he just says you can't even explain it. But to go beyond that and to add additional wrinkles into that story and make it somehow fit together in a way that does come across far more palatable than something like, for example, um, oh, now I can't think of the name of that movie. What is the name of it? Uh, Shane Carruth's... um, I'm going to think of it. I'm going to Google it because that's the only way I'm going to think of it. Um, Primer. Primer. Uh, You know, Primer, maybe the most scientifically sound time travel movie, but Looper, you know, taking that in a different direction of 
one of the more palatable and and visibly enjoy uh, you know visibly uh, uh, understandable uh, time travel movies which even has other layers on top of that and you know Ryan Johnson has to keep all these moving pieces in a in a row for the viewer he has to balance all of these different characters and you know from and 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 make sure that when we're flashed back to even even talking about it like when we're flashed back from Bruce Willis's character's future to his past which is also Joseph Gordon-Levitt's future and follow him that way that we're not confused and organize things and and not only organize them but get the actors to portray them as if they do know what they know and what they don't know they don't know and how everything kind of fits together so well um, it's a lot and I think he does an, a great 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 job uh, putting it all together and making it cohesive so number five from Looper is Ryan Johnson. Number four is Joshua Oppenheimer for The Act of Killing. So this is a documentary. Uh, the Act of Killing is kind of, um, kind of a big deal, right? Kind of a big deal. If you haven't heard of this, well, I don't know why, but Joshua Oppenheimer and... Uh, He uh, had a couple of co-directors uh, on the film, uh, at least one, Christine Sin, uh, but the lead director was Joshua Oppenheimer. The Act of Killing, he, he takes us to a place where uh, he interviews these men who were leaders of death squads. Death squads. Doesn't sound great. Uh, in Indonesia who played a very pivotal role in uh, genocide. Just just a little, little genocide thing. And these men, he's not in prison talking to them. They are just living. They are out in the world living. Uh, celebrated, in fact, as heroes. Which is unbelievably surreal unbelievably surreal uh and so what puts this documentary already like that already puts this documentary in a situation where it really does feel very unbelievable but you go a little further he takes this even further and you know not only is he talking to these guys these horrific people these awful beings but he asks them, and it almost feels like a gag, but he asks them to recreate, reenact the atrocities they committed. He doesn't phrase it that way, but that's what it is. And they can do it however they want, uh, <laughs> which is just bizarre. And so... What, what I find fascinating most of all about... Oppenheimer and uh, I guess not only the direction he has in the film but also how he like I, I kind of even extrapolating the idea of what a director does in a sense you know it's not simply 
when you think of a documentary, it's not that he's uh, deciding, you know, who plays what role. It's not that he's putting all these pieces together. He is literally there in this movie interviewing these people and then kind of convincing them to give him these scenes he needs in a documentary. You know, he's convincing them to give him, you know, like a Hollywood crime scene. But instead it's uh, it's it's them just like executing or, or, or reenacting the execution of Indonesian people. Or it's a musical number as they kill Indonesian people. And the, the film... Uh, you know, it, he just kind of lets them do their thing. He doesn't, you know, explicitly condemn them that I can recall. I, I Like, I don't remember, there's never a scene that I can remember, at least, where Oppenheimer kind of turns to the camera and, you know, you know, Jim Halpert from The Office and kind of is like, look at these guys. You see, look at these bozos. Like these, Like, these guys should be in prison. You know, he doesn't do any of that. It's just... Tell me what happened. What did you do? What has happened since then? Would you like to show me what happened and reenact it? How about this? Why not do it this way? Show me. this is, And just like letting them to their own devices. And just striking cinematic gold. And, you know, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't even characterize it as him kind of lucking into this circumstance. You know, he cultivates this film on his own in a way, a lot. I mean, I'm sure he had help with his team, but like he cultivates this movie out of, you know, of, which is at times, you know, y- y- silly. And yet it does feel very much like he, he planned it all. You know, it's like, it's kind of like, he's like, Oh, I, he saw this opening and he took it and, the fact that it works out is is mind-blowing. And so Oppenheimer and the Act of Killing is my number four. And I, I, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating, fascinating depiction. One of the most original, most unique, most uh, harrowing documentaries uh, around. Uh, so number four, Joshua Oppenheimer for the Act of Killing. Number three is Bart Layton for The Imposter. This is the other documentary. Now, The Imposter, if you have not seen it, is a documentary about a, a man who uh, is from Spain, and he pretends to be uh, a teenage boy from Texas. He puts on an act. He pretend, you know, he, he, uh, who's the guy? His name is Frederick Bordin. You know, he, he pretends to be this boy that the San Antonio family lost uh, when he was 13. And it's been three and a half years or so. And Bordin pulls up the, you know, he gets, he takes, he affects 
everything he can that he can determine and find out about this kid. And he, he shows up and suddenly the family is overjoyed. You know, they are a wreck and so, so unbelievably happy to have him back. Except he's very different now. Obviously, because he's not the same person, but he's older. He looks older than he, he's supposed to be. He speaks differently than he used to. Uh, you know, he has different habits, and, uh, you know, he, you know, the food is that he likes is not the same as the food he used to like, and this and that and the other. And every step of the way, the family is completely convinced that it is the kid. And so the film itself, the documentary itself, is portrayed with reenactments uh, and reimaginings of the, the events that took place, but also uh, talking directly to the family members and to Frederick Bourdine. That is the key. Uh, so I think without talking to Bourdine himself throughout the documentary, uh, it definitely would lose uh, quite a bit of luster. But the fact that you have him in there and that, you know, the editing on this and the way that we intersplice splice the talking head side of things with the reenactments and we see you know we talk to the family member the family member the family member, and then we get this huge just like every time Bordin is on the screen he is so charismatic he drops huge bombs of truth like you know you have the family members trying to reason with themselves how did we not see this coming and cut to Bordin just kind of like laissez-faire Laissez-faire reacting just like, ah, oh, I just I just told them and they believe me. Uh, it's it's stunning. And you know, I think that what Leighton is able what Leighton is able to do directing this film and turning it into this in, incredible case study of sort of self-fulfilling prophecies you know you are you believe so deeply that this person will return to you that you will find this person that at just just the mere notion of that that being true you dive in feet first uh, he, he gets he pulls he, I don't know, Leighton Leighton pulls it off. He he's absolutely one hundred percent successful uh, orchestrating this documentary. That on top of showcasing this fascinating story, is able to get dive deeper into these very very important questions revolving around why you know why would you not check more you know why would you not follow up on these issues that don't sort of fit these pieces that don't go together these distinctions that really don't feel like they make any sense and yet they really didn't i don't know it's 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 a fascinating story and i think leighton directs it in such a way that it comes across uh far stronger of a film than simply you know the talking head you know how I think you know having these talking heads just kind of 
explaining what happened is probably compelling in and of its own right, but composing it in such a way as he does to get to the crux of the matter and to really pinpoint the the the, the biggest issues at stake here, I think elevates the movie to a very, very, very high level. So number three, Barton Layton, Bart Layton for The Imposter. Number two, this year's runner-up for Best Director is Catherine Bigelow for Zero Dark Thirty. Catherine Bigelow is, uh, you know, the only Oscar-winning female director of all time. Uh, she is one of the best directors, gender excluded, uh, working today. Uh, she is partnered with Mark Boll multiple times, and I think they make a great team uh, in, as filmmakers. And what she does with Zero Dark Thirty, you know, I, I kind of just bluntly stated that, you know, Chastain owns this movie, and it's largely uh, because of Bigelow's directing. She is creating this atmosphere and this situation where Chastain is able to thrive. And that seems like it should be very easy. <laughs> I think Chastain thrives in most situations as an actor. But uh, there's a way to do that where you just, where I think if you look at something like Molly's Game, you can see Chastain kind of owns that movie. And with the exception of Idris Elba, in my opinion, the rest of the film feels weak by comparison because Chastain is so strong. In Zero Dark Thirty, I would say that she outacts everyone else in the movie across the board, but they never feel weak, quote unquote, by comparison uh, against her. And that is a feat in and of itself. That is that is where the strength of Bigelow's direction really comes into play. And I think she creates this very effective, very impactful um, retelling of this very significant event that comes across as, you know, very uneven and in a, you know, simultaneously problematic and necessary way, which I think a lot of people would have probably approached it and said, no, 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 we can't, we can't put this in a gray area. And Bigelow said, well, it is a gray area, and that's how it's going to be. And I think that was the perfect decision. And, you know, she, she you know, f makes, you know, n no mistakes making this movie. So, for me, Zero Dark Thirty, runner-up, number two, best director, Catherine Bigelow. Which means this year's best director is Paul Thomas Anderson. PTA uh, for the master. It, it's, it's not... It's not an easy film to to describe uh, 
for a couple of reasons. One of them being that it's been a long time since I've seen it, but the others being that it's a it's a very outside of the a couple of characters, it's a very inconsequential film. You know, like Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is this big cult leader and yet the impact that he has is kind of as as wide as it may have actually been is very much constrained to Joaquin Phoenix and Amy Adams and and Hoffman himself. And so pushing past that for PTA Paul Thomas Anderson to successfully come away from this movie with something that is as long as it is and focused on just characters mostly and still be compelling to still feature uh, incredible dramatic tension brilliantly composed scenes that make use of the absolute best qualities of phoenix and adams and hoffman at every single turn uh, to to put out this movie where it doesn't feel like it drags where the pacing is consistent and ratchets up the tension when it needs to and gives you a moment to breathe when you need to is you know it's all on his shoulders in a sense and he is a more than capable uh, person in that role director and i think you know part of that is getting you know the the cast that he's working with obviously you know very very talented across the board and to achieve to to find a way to balance an Amy Adams and a Joaquin Phoenix and a Philip Seymour Hoffman against each other without any of them uh overbearing on the others and you know despite the fact that Phoenix is the lead in this movie Adams and Hoffman are still just elevated to this point where they are larger than life characters and Anderson understands that he's aware of that he doesn't you know diminish anyone by the amount of screen time that they have by the fact that you know maybe they're not the focal point of every shot and he still is able to make it so that they're all you know greatly significant within the confines of the frames of the film and i think it's it's masterful what he's able to do in the master pun intended uh so my best director paul thomas anderson for the master uh great so that is the halfway point and now as always the only uh, category besides best picture that has a uh, predetermined spot in the order in which I talk about uh, it is best original song, which is always the sixth category as it is the halfway point and uh, kind of helps break up the episode a little bit because I input, uh, you know, short clips from the songs into the episode. So we now move on to best original song and the nominees are freedom Django Unchained Sun tells me good things are coming and I ain't gonna not believe I am 
The Hobbit, colon, An Unexpected Journey. Far over the misty mountains cold To dungeons deep and caverns old We must away a break of day Find our long forgotten gold. Skyfall. Skyfall. You can take my name, but you'll never have my heart. Make the sky fall when it crumbles. We will stand Love, Frank and Weenie. Cause love is not always what you think it'll be. Love, oh, love is strange, oh, when there's beauty on the inside, the outside, there's nothing to change. And touch the sky. I will ride, I will fly, chase the wind and touch the sky. I will fly, chase the wind and touch the sky. Now, uh, starting number five uh, a lot of these movies or two of these movies three of these movies uh, this is the only nomination that they will have uh, but uh, some of them nominated more than once a, we'll start with number five and that is Brave Touch the Sky uh, Pixar uh, up until up at this point had not made a musical uh, but had featured a lot of great music in some of their movies you know the Toy Story franchise uh, has had some fantastic songs accompany it that that really did deserve uh, the recognition that they got, uh, and and beyond that, you know, I think as a whole, like the company just just knows how to put together a film. Brave, not quite as well received as the best of Pixar's lineup by us by by far, but even still, is a film that technically is very very satisfying and touch the sky is a fairly mm, obvious song uh you know from the title alone i think where it goes is not uncommon or out of the ordinary or strange but that said i think the song is still strong i think it, it, it does fill you with this irish pride and and strength that we see in the movie from Merida and for that reason alone I think the connection it has and the ability it has to amplify her strength in in a way is enough it's it's successful very successful 
And so for me, number five is Touch the Sky from Brave. Moving along, number four is Frankenweenie with Strange Love. Uh, as would you would expect from uh, a movie like Frankenweenie, the song is uh, suitably macabre in a sense. Uh, it is very unorthodox, as is much of stop animation and, and Tim Burton and things like that. Uh, Strange Love fits the atmosphere of the film. I, I think were it, I don't know, it doesn't quite match up perfectly in my opinion. I think it, it fits the, the what, what the movie is trying to do, but it comes uh, very close to... to um, I don't know, missing the forest for the trees, almost, I guess is kind of how I want to phrase it. Uh, it it's it's not as straightforward and, and blunt and obvious as Touch the Sky is. It's a very uh, mellow and, and um, appropriate song in, in the way that it's uh, written, in the way that it's performed. But, I don't know, it just, something about it, I, I don't know if it's just too light if it's too if it's not dark enough maybe uh for the movie that it's accompanying accompanying but i don't know i i do like the song quite a bit i like strange love i think it's a good song and so it's number four strange love frank and weenie number three from the hobbit an unexpected journey is misty mountains uh we get a moment in the film where Thorin and the dwarves uh, kind of sing and hum this song in uh, Bilbo's Hobbit Hole, and it's one of one of my favorite scenes in The Hobbit: An Unexpected Journey, as you get this sense of community amidst all of these strangers with Bilbo. Uh, this group that has been together for so long that they are harmonizing this deep, uh, very bass baritone, you know, hymn almost. It's a very soothing sound and one with a lot of forbading going forward, which is very uh, necessary and, and very makes sense given the, the films and the story and the plot to follow. Uh, it's, it's a caution uh, as our intrepid heroes head off to the Misty Mountains. So number three uh, from The Hobbit and An Unexpected Journey is Misty Mountains. Number two. Number two, also nominated once, once before tonight, is Skyfall, previously nominated for Special Effects, now nominated for Best Original Song, also titled Skyfall, performed by the great Adele. Uh, Skyfall is one of the better, uh, dare I say, the best Bond song I've ever heard. I haven't seen all the Bond films, but I love Adele. I think she's got an incredible, incredible voice, and Skyfall is a truly, truly... Um, just just powerful song and i think un unlike the uh 
and uh, this, you know, unlike Misty Mountains, which really does fit at home in the movie that it's in, Skyfall, as well as the the song that won this this year, don't really outside like they they aren't in the movie in the same way. You know, these aren't with the except, yeah, except for Misty Mountains. Like none of these songs are like performed in the movie like they like this. Uh, which is fine, you know. Obviously, that's not the only criteria to be nominated or win this category, but it does help. It does help. And but Skyfall just, you know, it hits that that mark of Bond, where you know you 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 hear that song and it just yeah, I'm ready to jump in an Aston Martin. Give me the laser pen. Uh, Shaken, not stirred, uh, so on and so on and so on, and I think capturing that in a song is, you know, has been done twenty some odd times, and the the idea that this many iterations later you're able to create a song that does it better than any of the ones before this, oh man, you know, hat off, hat way way off to to the not only the the performance by Adele but also you know everyone who worked on writing it and composing the music it's it's stunning so number 2 the runner up for best original song is skyfall from skyfall which means that the winner for best original song previously nominated for tactile effects previously nominated for best original score is django unchained for freedom uh I don't recall this song being uh, in a scene in the movie. Uh, you know, I didn't... It, maybe it was. I, I don't recall. I don't know. Maybe it played over the credits. I don't remember. It's on the it's on the sound tr- soundtrack, though. And uh, it is an infectiously powerful song. I, I think there's a lot of great deep meanings in this song i think it it really does play well with the themes of the film and coming across as very complementary to what the movie had going for it and i i just love 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 the harmony between um uh, i'm gonna have to look up the names Anthony Hamilton and Elena Boynton. Uh, and actually, uh, the song is in the movie, since I'm looking it up and uh, can actually say that. Uh, it's used during flashback. Flashback. Uh, which I think the, the message of the song fits that really well. I think the song in and of itself is an incredibly powerful song and using it during the flashback sequence that happens in Django Unchained. Uh, yeah, I think that's a great call. <laughs> uh, so Freedom, Alina Boynton, Anthony, Hamilton. Did I already forget? Did I? No, Alina Boynton, Anthony Hamilton. Uh, my favorite original song, best original song of 2012. I think it's great. I think it's really, really great. Uh, so that's best original song, and that's six. That's six categories out of ten. 
six categories. I'll be honest, the, the thing I dislike most, and I guess it's really the only thing I dislike about doing these episodes is that they're so long. Uh, we have crossed the two hour mark and we still have four categories to go, so let us ratchet this up. Uh, next category is Best Supporting Performance, and the nominees are Amy Adams, The Master, Emily Blunt, Looper, Jason Clark, Zero Dark Thirty, Leonardo DiCaprio, Django Unchained, Sally Field, Lincoln, Anne Hathaway, Les Miserables, Lena Headey, Dread, Philip Seymour Hoffman, The Master, Tommy Lee Jones, Lincoln, and Christopher Walken, Seven Psychopaths. And to start with number 10 is Jason Clark from Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, I mentioned how this is a movie that really does just kind of revolve around Jessica Chastain, and that is absolutely true. Jason Clark uh, has the second best role in the film, and does so very, very, very well. Uh, but he, by nature of how the story is written and how the characters are given screen time and, and so on and so forth, you know, he he just simply does not get enough dimension to his character to push him any higher up this list. I think Jason Clark is a very good actor, and this movie is one of his better performances, but I think the problem here is less that he didn't give us enough and more that he didn't have enough range of his in his character and enough time to really push him further uh, into kind of a three-dimensional, uh, you know, and, and beyond uh, character. Uh, and that's, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the issue. Uh, moving on, number nine. We're really speeding now. Number nine is Lena Headey for Dread. Dread uh, is a f an anomaly of a film. Uh, this is the only nomination it has uh, for me this year. But the, the drug sequences, you know, some of those came very, very close to making the best original scene list for me this year. And it's a very underrated movie, in my opinion. And Lena Headey is fantastic in it. Uh, as I believe Mother, is that her name? Uh, as Mama, as Mama, uh, close, very close. Uh, and and she just, you know, she's just the wild side of Cersei enough to distinguish the two <laughs> two characters. She is completely nuts in this movie. Uh, and and it really pays off for her. I think it's really great. I really enjoyed her performance in Dread. Moving on, number eight, uh, we go to uh, Tommy Lee Jones from Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln getting two nominations in this category. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones, the lesser of the two, and that that's kind of unfair to say because he is pretty great. In the film, he plays a senator. Man, I. It's not clear. I really don't do as much research as I should before I start recording this episode. Unfortunately, I am a little pressed for time. He plays Thaddeus Stevens. Uh, Thaddeus Stevens, who was a representative uh, from Pennsylvania, 
Uh, and I thought uh, Tommy Lee Jones' hair looked really bad in, in the film. And now looking at a picture of Thaddeus Stevens, uh, it, it fit. It's actually exactly how it should have been. Uh, he was a leader of the radical Republican faction of the Republican Party during the 1860s a fierce opponent of slavery and discrimination against African-Americans. And, uh, yeah, I think Tommy Lee Jones does a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful job of portraying this man and uh, giving him the fire, energy, and conviction that a a character like that, that a real person like that, needed to be portrayed with in a film made in 2012 uh and tommy lee jones was the right person for the job so lincoln uh tommy lee jones very 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 good moving on to number seven we have emily blunt from looper emily blunt from looper uh like i said like she doesn't really come into the film until the second half uh and when she does the direction of the movie takes a pretty sharp turn in a new new with a new heading but i think her sort of ethereal magical quality that she has the devotion that she shows for her son uh the the relationship that she has with uh young joe and old joe as levitt and willis uh, respectively is gives her these layers and gives her these dimensions that um allows her character to be multifaceted enough to the point where you can you know really get inside of her head and really find common ground with with who she is and and appreciate the performance that emily blunt gives so number seven is emily blunt from looper number six is christopher walken from seven psychopaths uh this movie i really 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 like this movie and I think it's really funny, and I think it's really charming and really, really nice. And uh, best performance of the movie for me is Christopher Walken. He has a brilliant scene, uh, a truly brilliant scene with, oh, um, uh, oh we're going to talk about it too. Who's the other guy in it? I'm going to figure it out. I can see his face. I can see his face. I can see his face. Why don't I not know who he is? Uh, oh, um, Zelchko Ivanek. Zelchko. Zelchko sounds right. Zelchko Ivanek. Yes, I got it. Okay. Uh, Walken and Zelchko Ivanek have this great scene. Uh, Walken is just kind of He's the old guy in, in in the crew of this movie, and he is just cracking jokes. But his character does have that sort of heart to him in this in the film, and he's, you know, for a, a pretty pretty big ensemble movie, he does get that additional like drama, conflict, pathos uh, to his character that really sets him apart from many of the others. Uh, like, you know, like Sam Rockwell or, or Colin Farrell. So Christopher Walken, number six, Seven Psychopaths. Number five, we go back to Lincoln for uh, Sally Field, uh, who plays Mary Todd Lincoln. 
that right? Did I get that right? Mary Todd Lincoln. Yeah. Uh, so she uh, reportedly, you know, was just as entrenched in her character as Daniel Day-Lewis was. Uh, and I think anytime you get to work very closely with Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, you it elevates your acting abilities and prowess um, tenfold. I think... You could say the same thing uh, with everyone he worked with on Phantom Thread. I think you could say the same thing about uh, Paul Dano from um, the Oil movie. Man, I'm just blanking on everything. He played Plainview. frustration so much frustration there will be blood <laughs> there will be blood um i did i had his name right plain view uh yeah and i think sally field obviously i'm not saying discrediting her own abilities to act i think she's a fantastic actor in her own right uh, but it does help when the person opposite you in most of your scenes is one of the best best actors alive and she gives off a very fascinating and convincing uh, Mary Todd Lincoln who holds her own against uh, Mr. Abraham and uh, allows her to have more than just wife on the other end of a phone sort of situation or the equivalent therein of the 1860s. And so I'm a really big fan of of her her performance in Lincoln. Number four uh, is... Uh, Amy Adams. Uh, Amy Adams from The Master. It's it's fresh. It's it sucks because I think Amy Adams is amazing, and yet, and in this movie, in The Master, she's pretty fantastic. But when you, you know, some other time, perhaps, uh, you know, the people, the three people ahead of her on this list are all kind of giving, perhaps, you know, career bests. Uh, in, a, in a certain degree and she is just giving her career norm of incredibleness in the master uh, so tough to t- t- tough to beat that but in the you know the other the other aspect of this being that the master does really revolve around phoenix and hoffman's relationship adams definitely involved but a little more on the outskirts of that situation and it does really show uh, in the film you know she's not given as much to work with she does a fantastic job with what she does have but uh, ultimately I think uh, she falls a little bit short for me um, this time so that's Amy Adams number four in the master number three uh, the actual best supporting actress winner and actually the highest ranking Female on my supporting performance list is Anne Hathaway for Les Miserables. She isn't in the movie that long, but she has an incredible scene singing. Um, why do I know this song? Uh, I dreamed a dream. Singing I dreamed a dream. She's got a fantastic voice. It's a brilliant scene. She's very emotional. Uh, all of Anne Hathaway's scenes. Um, Uh, there's the other song um, at the end of the day where she's in the factory and and has to deal with these squawking hen women around her and and then deal with the foreman and and with Hugh Jackman and uh, 
all of these things kind of kind of interacting and, and playing against each other. And I think uh, for for a movie filled to the brim with big names and and, and huge parts, uh, she gets you know a very very good role, and I think she really just takes off running with it. And like I said, uh, my absolute favorite performance of Anne Hathaway's. Uh, is the one that she gives in Lame Is. I think it's very, very, very good. So, uh, Anne Hathaway, number three for Lame Is. Number two, the runner up for best supporting performance. This is the third time that this film has been the runner up tonight, having already won once for original song, and that's Leonardo DiCaprio for Django Unchained. So very close. Uh, I'm sure most people have heard the story about the scene where he pounds his fist into the table, he breaks the glass, it cuts him, and he keeps going. Uh, Truly, truly remarkable stuff. Uh, And then he will one-up himself many, many years after that by, you know, sleeping outside in the belly of a bear or, you know, whatever nonsense they say happened on The Revenant. But suffice to say, uh, DiCaprio in Unchained, oh man, that's, that's one of my... Like I said, I think that's his best performance. He has given some absolutely outstanding performances in his career, from Titanic to Inception to The Revenant to uh, to What's Eating Gilbert Grape. You know, you can go from the beginning to the end. He, you know, Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, I think Django Unchained is the best performance of his. And you know, Wolf of Wall Street is the only one uh, that comes close and he won for that in 2013 for me uh so they're very very close i would give the slightest edge the slightest edge to to his role in django unchained but he he is phenomenal in both and the reason he does not win best supporting performance for his best performance uh uh is because philip seymour hoffman is just a god uh, and and that that is just the truth. <laughs> he he is. It's such a shame that he he passed away. It really is. I, I saddens me every time I think about it. And his performance in the master is nothing short of transcendent. He is. He's always been an actor who, you know, he'll get red in the face. He has a fantastic short fuse for the characters he plays. And it it comes across so brilliantly, so beautifully, and really gets to the heart of, of a scene. And he does that again and again and again in The Master. Like, that is the perfect role for him and his temperament and the way he's able to just explode on on command it's amazing it's amazing he's phenomenal philip seymour hoffman the master best supporting performance in my opinion such such fantastic fantastic performance um so that's supporting we're down to three moving on number three is best screenplay Original or adapted, they're all together. And the nominees are Wes Anderson, Moonrise Kingdom, Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig, 
for Francis Ha. Mark Boll, Zero Dark Thirty. Tobias Lindholm and Thomas Vinterberg, The Hunt. And Martin McDonough, Seven Psychopaths. Starting with number five on this list, we have Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, Wes Anderson, Moonrise Kingdom. As I said, I, I love Wes Anderson. Moonrise Kingdom as a film is beautifully written. Uh, following these two young lovers as they run away together and watching the parents and adults sort of pick up the pieces of every life around them, trying to kind of figure out where they are and then solve the question, the problem and and then get to them and get them back and all and so and so forth. It's beautifully scripted, beautifully uh, uh, led through the plot and narrative by the writing, uh, giving us these fully fleshed out characters who only appear on the screen for maybe two scenes at most. And I think uh, there's just this this sense of, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know that Moonrise Kingdom is necessarily the absolute peak for Wes Anderson, you know, Grand Budapest Hotel is is also a fantastic film. Fantastic Mr. Fox is a fantastic film, etc. But Moonrise Kingdom is just, I think, the setting of it allows his writing to bear so so much fruit, and I I really am blown away by some of the things that happen in that movie. Number four. Uh, is Seven Psychopaths from Martin McDonough. Like I said, I think <laughs> I had some problems with Three Billboards. Uh, I love In Bruges, and I really love Seven Psychopaths. Uh, I think it's underrated. I think McDonough's writing is pretty spot on, and you know he he's mining every single scenario f- for just brilliant humor, and. Uh, the 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 direction he takes some of these characters in these moments when any time they've happened in the past like we know what's going to happen and we've seen this play out before and again and again and again and yet somehow he gives us something different uh, over and over and over throughout this film and i just i find that fascinating and i think he he really does put us on a path of I mean, pun intended, psych- psychoticness. That didn't work. I, I I couldn't make that work. He puts us on a psycho path. Whatever. Stupid. Dumb. I really like the writing. I think he's really witty, really funny in this. And I don't think that the movie is trying to do more than that, necessarily. And so, for that reason, it is able to really hone him and the writing in in a much more confined and restricted way that I I appreciate. So, Seven Psychopaths, uh, number four, best screenplay. Number three is Noah Baumbach, Greta Gerwig for Francis Ha. Like I said, uh, returning to this movie years after I first saw it, I was taken by it quite substantially. It's a really beautifully written movie. Uh, you can't just—I uh, don't know—like I, I, like this 
it comes across as a movie that features a lot of improvisation, and yet it does, you couldn't possibly have improvised so much of this. And I think setting up the scenarios and, and constructing these dynamics uh, had to have happened on the page, first and foremost. And the, the writing involved and the dialogue and, and you know, whatever, even if, if Gerwig and Baumbach, you know, kind of played fast and loose with the script, it had to start there. And it's, you know, it grew into something even more incredible. Uh, so I love it. I love Francis Ha and I love the script and the screenplay and the writing. I think it's all all pretty fantastic. So number three is Francis Ha from Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig. Number two, runner-up for best screenplay is Tobias Lindholm and Thomas Vinterberg for The Hunt. I don't know if I should be giving that an accent or not, but I see it and it looks like it deserves it. I mentioned The Hunt when I talked about Mad, Mads Mikkelsen. It is a powerful film. It does deserve to um, uh, it does uh, deserve the recognition for uh, the the writing as well. I think getting creating this atmosphere where Mads Mikkelsen's character is loathed and hated and being able to go up to the line of of just pure evil from these other characters and toe that line and never cross it takes a lot, a lot of restraint and a lot of pushing the envelope. And I think the film does that. I think it succeeds and it creates an atmosphere that is very difficult to watch, very difficult to feel and results in a very, very incredible film in the process. So for me, number two, Tobias Lindholm, Thomas Winterberg, The Hunt, which means the best screenplay of 2012 goes to Mark Bowl and Zero Dark Thirty. I think this is a story that, you know, we're seeing a movie made only a few handful of years after when it really happened. And to get to to get from the true events to the to the film Zero Dark Thirty from you know, Mark Bowl is able to really deconstruct and then reconstruct exactly what he needed to put on this film and it's it's really fascinating to see all of this play out in a very satisfying emotionally dramatic way that uh, that you know hits all the notes that it needs to hit and still manages to give us characters to care about, issues to confront, uh, conflict to resolve. It just, you know, it's not easy to, to do that with a real story, uh, especially one that is fresh in everyone's minds, and yet he pulls it off in spectacular fashion. So best screenplay, 2012, Mark Bowl for Zero Dark Thirty. Which brings us to our penultimate category, which is best original scene. Best scene, I guess. I don't really put original in there because it's just the best scene. And the nominees are I Did My Research, Silver Linings Playbook, I Got a Gun, Seven Psychopaths, Letters, Moonrise Kingdom, No Blinking, the Master, 
and not welcome here. The hunt. Number five, best scene from 2012, is I did my research from Silver Linings Playbook. In this scene, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, as Tiffany, uh, charges into Bradley Cooper's house. Uh, they have kind of been in free fall since the, the Eagles lost to the Giants, a game that Bradley Cooper's character was at. And in doing so, uh, did not show up to practice dancing with uh, Jennifer Lawrence. She enters in a fit of fury. Uh, she's yelling at Bradley Cooper, uh, you know, telling him that she made a, he made a commitment to her, etc., etc., and finally, Robert De Niro kind of steps in, Bradley Cooper's dad, and he's like, and he kind of blames Jennifer Lawrence's character, Tiffany, for pretty much all the horrible things that have been happening to not only Bradley Cooper, but to the Eagles uh, in general, which prompts her to turn and direct her anger at him, where she goes down one by one listing all of the games that were played by like the Phillies or the Eagles since they were together and citing how Bradley Cooper spending time with uh, Jennifer Lawrence is what uh, was happening at the same time as all of these wins that took place whether they were running whether they were dancing whether uh, you know meeting for food or what have you and you know she delivers these lines with you know precise uh, just just matter-of-factness, and, you know, the whole time she keeps rattling off these things, you know, you see De Niro kind of slowly turning into this, you know, like, all right, you got a point, you got a point, and, like, slowly mulling everything over in his head, and, like, the rest of this family and friends are all around them, and they're kind of just, like, reeling from this attack almost, and uh, Shea Wiggum's character just kind of looks and is like, she's got a point, Pop. And Bradley Cooper just gets more and more incredulous and just impressed. You, you know, he doesn't have any, many lines in this scene. But the way he looks at Jennifer Lawrence, impressed and in awe and so proud of her in this moment is so touching. And she hits him with all these facts and she turns and Bradley Cooper's like, how did you know all that? And she just, you know, kind of shrugs with a i did my research as she takes us <laughs> she takes a swig of beer and it just you know it, it's like obviously you know she even says in the scene she doesn't care about sports she doesn't care about sports ball and yet obviously she cares about him right like that's the whole point she cares about him to know all these things and just kind of waiting for this time where her involvement with him is seen as a problem, is seen as a hindrance, is seen as, a, as something that needs to be fixed and corrected. And then she just kind of has this locked and loaded in the chamber, like, wait, 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 wait. Let's get the facts right. Boom, 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 boom. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Go on, et cetera, et cetera. Go fuck yourself, basically. And uh, it's great. I, I love it. It's great. I love this scene. I did my research. Silver Linings Playbook. Number four uh, is Letters from Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, in this scene, 
uh, our two protagonists are exchanging letters that they are writing back and forth to each other. And this is some of the finest editing that I've ever seen from Wes Anderson. These scenes, uh, the letters are being narrated by the characters as they're writing them. At the same time, we are seeing scenes, generally what's being uh, explained in the letters, but not always. And each letter gets interrupted. Uh, one of the letters is uh, by Kara Hayward, I believe. She's saying, you know, and my favorite color is cut off because now we're on the other side. We're listening to his letter and then his gets cut off halfway through a sentence and we're back to her and back to him, back to her, back to him. And some of them are hilarious. Uh, the parallels between the two characters as we get these moments of, uh, you know, connection between them as they both, you know, he's explaining that, you know, the kids don't really like him at the orphanage and foster home, foster home rather, uh, and it shows him, them all watching movie a movie together and one kid stands up because he's talking and he punches the kid in the crotch. And then on the other side, we see her talking about getting into a fight, and it shows her getting into a fight. So he's kind of downplaying the actual events that happened and circumventing them by explaining them in a different way, whereas she's being very upfront about what's happening, and they both have these just adorable parallels running against each other until eventually we get to the end of the sequence and this montage when... Uh, they've decided to run away. They've decided to. It's time to leave, and we get these. The probably my favorite too, which is she writes to him, or he writes to her when, and she says, you know, dear, I uh, forget the name, and just says where. And this is I love this for two reasons. First of all, if she's responding to his letter. She doesn't even answer his question of when. She just writes where, right? Uh, and maybe she doesn't act, maybe she, it's a different letter that we don't actually see. But I love the idea that, like, it doesn't even matter when, just where, right? I think that's, I love that in, in implication. The other aspect of it is that it's just short, it's abrupt, it's straightforward, and it's, captivating you know you you hit this moment of you can exchange an entire thought with one word and yeah they're kids but clearly they have this connection with each other and i think that that's a beautiful thing and i love how simply anderson chooses to display that i think it, it looks so it comes together so neatly. Number four, Letters from Moonrise Kingdom. Number three, from Seven Psychopaths, I Got a Gun. Uh, in this scene, Christopher Walken is being hunted, I guess, hunted uh, or pursued, rather, by Zelchko Evenek's character. And we see Christopher Walken walk up. Uh, Evenek and his band of thugs, I guess, are waiting for him, watching down the road. Walken uh, kind of shows up behind them. Evenek realizes he's behind him, grabs his gun, puts it, and he's like, put your hands up. And Walken says, no. And he's like, what? And he's like, 
put your hands up. And he's like, no. Well, why not? I don't want to. But I got a gun. And Walken says, I don't care. <laughs> My favorite line and is because it, it's it's per like even it cuts off the first word of the line would be you know it doesn't make any sense he cuts off the it he just doesn't make any sense you know incredulous just completely apparatic and it just it it strikes this perfect blend of Walken being aloof and absurd in the face of, you know, perilousness. And even Heck just, like, doesn't, cannot, for the life of him, understand the situation that he is in. If, I, which I love. I love this so much. Uh, and, you know, the scene continues a little longer as even X like, well, tell me where your friends are. Tell me. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. And he's just like, shoot me. And, and he just has this blasé... You know, you know, do whatever you got to do. You know, like, I, I don't have anything for you. And it just so counterintuitive to a scene like this. You know, you've seen and heard and been told a million times in your life, hands up, don't shoot. Whether it's, you know, just watching a TV show with cops in it. Whether it's related to, um, you know, police, uh, police brutality. Whether, you know... A multitude of different reasons and, and times when the no idea of putting your hands up has entered the conversation, has entered your life. And yet, this scene plays out so brilliantly because that's the exact opposite of what happens. It, it just... It just is just perfect, you know? He's just like, I don't want to. This doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's great. I love it. It's great. Walk in. So good in this. Number two... From the hunt, not welcome here. Uh, so we kind of downturn from the humor into these top two moments, top two scenes. So in the hunt and not uh, not welcome here, Mickelson's character is in the store trying to buy groceries. Uh, he has a basket, some some items in it. He goes up to the deli and wants to get some pork chops. Uh, and the butcher is, says they don't have any. And... Mickelson points to pork chops and he said, no, those, I'd, I'd like some of those. And the butcher tells him, no, you, you can't, you can't buy those. And for an instant, oh, it's so beautiful. For an instant, you can see Mickelson's face like, he's not going to sell me these. All right, I'll just, I'll leave. And then the next instant, you see the resolve fill in his face as he said, you know what? No. No, I want this. I am entitled to buy this with my money. You, you have to, like, uh, th th this is, I, he, he realizes, he's in his head thinking, I am not guilty of this thing you are accusing me of. And regardless of what you think had happened, there has been no, you know, actual... Like, no, nothing has been decided. Nothing legal has happened. You cannot just deny me what I want and what I can pay for. And, and, and this is an establishment that sells food. And I would like to buy your food. And so he resolves and he says, you know what? I want a pork chop. And the butcher cleans his blade. 
cleans his hands, comes out from behind the counter, and Mickelson watches him do it. He knows what's coming, and the butcher punches him in the face. And uh, he falls to the ground. Uh, it looks like a manager who, who arrives next, uh, as well as another uh, cashier or something. And they're kind of trying to, they're, they're telling me, like, hey, you got to get out of here. You're not welcome. And Mickelson, you know, struggles to his feet. You know, his nose is bleeding. And he kind of like talking to himself almost as if he's saying, you know, you can't just hit somebody. How can you hit somebody like that? You know, is it okay? Yeah, you know, kind of accusing the butcher and then the rest of the employees. Like, how can you just hit somebody like this? You know, what are you doing? And he is grabbed by two employees and escorted towards the front of the store partway there you know he tries to turn around to grab the stuff that he was going to buy they say no they push him back they get into a fight he's hit and beaten again by the manager and the other employee that were pushing him towards the exit uh followed by him being thrown out of the store physically landing on the ground and and gravel outside where he tries to stand up and is pelted in the head with it looks like soda cans uh and and just this is it's hard to watch and you see him towards the end of the scene kind of you know, regrettably and, and unfortunately putting together the pieces in his head of, yeah, <laughs> is this my life now? Have Is this what's happened? And it sucks and it's traumatic and there's not, not much he can really do about it, uh, honestly. And it, it's, you know, he it hits him like those cans did and now he's got to figure out how to go from here and and it kind of just really hammers home how pain how how painful what everyone believes he did has been to them how how problematic this mob mentality is in the world and it's a really powerful, well-constructed, uh, escalating, but never, never really going over the top. You know, it, it never br- hits a breaking point, and but it always feels like there's one coming, uh, which I think was was really clever, cleverly made. So, the hunt, not welcome here, which makes the best scene, and the third win for the master no blinking uh so this is the processing scene in the master where joaquin phoenix philip seymour hoffman uh sit uh, sit opposite each other and uh phoenix is being subject to processing uh, which basically consists of direct and penetrating questions uh, about him about his thoughts about his feelings and the first half of the scene uh plays out with just kind of, you know, Hoffman trying to, following a script and getting to, you know, what 
is going on inside Phoenix's head, trying to piece together and pick apart and pull out this information uh, as best as possible. Which, you know, he does very successfully. And yet, along the way, at least in the first half of the scene, uh, you know, Phoenix is hesitating. You know, Hoffman asks him the same question over and over again, and Phoenix you know, can, gives him the same answer. But, you know, you can see that there's... He's thinking about every question, and he's he's not letting himself open to what ultimately I think uh, Phoenix is, or, or what Hoffman wants from him, which is, you know, vulnerable and, um, you know, quick answers to make, uh, to, to, to achieve, like, the maximum amount of honesty and truth. So, uh Halfway through the scene, you know, Hoffman's like, all right, well, you know, you think we should go join the rest, you know, kind of almost, you know, over it in a way, if that makes any sense. And then Phoenix, you know, kind of like pulls on the reins a little bit, like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Like, I like this, like answering these questions. Like, let's do this and let's do this longer. Let's keep doing this. And, and like a switch is flipped and Hoffman you know, kind of like reasserts himself and he says, all right, well, you can't blink. There's no blinking. If you blink, it's an infraction. We go back to the beginning and start over. And Phoenix like, yeah, okay, got it. And he asks him these questions. And he's penetrating the deepest parts of Phoenix's mind. He is reaching inside his head and pulling out this information. And when you have, it's ironic, you know, when you have very little time to process what's being asked of you and you're answering on reflex, when you're answering on instinct, you know, you get very different answers than, you know, when I'm saying... When I'm giving you, you know, a minute to like formulate a response. And so the questions become more and more intimate and personal. Uh, we talk about, he, he asks him about uh, his relations with a family member, uh, which in this case is his Aunt Bertha. Uh, we get, and and I think two times, maybe two times, uh, he, infra- he he blinks, and there's an infraction. We start over at the beginning. And you can see, oh, man, Phoenix is so good in this scene. So They're both absolutely phenomenal scene. Uh, one, my favorite scene of the year, one of the best scenes ever, dramatically speaking. Just watching these two men oh, just, just pulverize each other with acting ability, if that makes any sense at all. Hoffman... You know, calmly, just like, that's an infraction. We're going to start over. And he asks the same questions. And this, the last time Phoenix, you know, he is determined. He is resolute. He refuses to, he barely moves his face for a while. Uh, You know, you can see the strain on his eyes to not blink. Uh, You know, his mouth hardly moves. It's mostly just his lips uh, letting the words come out through his teeth. 
and Hoffman just continues to ask, you know, question after question after question after question in this slow, deliberate, but matter-of-fact way. And then at some point, the the scene uh, elevates itself, and suddenly, you know, Phoenix has become more animated once we get to discussing, you know, this girl that he loves and misses and, you know, kind of screwed things up with. And Hoffman just keeps attacking that weak point and that pressure point over and over and you're like why would you like why aren't you there with her now why did you leave her what did you do wrong and you know it, it just it just I, I don't know you have to all these scenes are on youtube all five of them they're all amazing but the processing scene in the master is is a class of its own it's very very powerful breathtaking scene i i love it very very much uh, truly truly um awe-inspiring to see these these you know no pun intended masters of the craft uh going up against each other and kind of battling it out almost uh, it's really fascinating so best scene no blinking from the master which leaves us with one final category and that is best picture and the nominees are the hunt the imposter looper seven psychopaths and zero dark 30. I've talked about all five of these films to some degree uh, tonight already. Tonight, this episode already. Um, all of them, with the exception of, of The Imposter, have at least four nominations. The Imposter only has two. Uh, three of them were nominated for Best Director uh, with, you know, Looper, The Imposter, and Zero Dark Thirty. Um... Three of them were nominated for Screenplay, Zero Dark Thirty, The Hunt, and Seven Psychopaths. Uh, you know, they're, they're fantastic films. And honestly, I think they're all incredible and you should check them out if you haven't seen any of them. Any of the movies that I mentioned, I think, are very good to amazing. Uh, so, that said, I don't really have to talk too much about them. But, number five is Seven Psychopaths. I said, I said it before, I think it's an underrated film. I personally like it the most out of McDonough's films. Uh, maybe it requires me going back and watching it again, but it just it struck me so hard the first time I watched it uh, that I liked it even more than in Bruges. Number four is Looper. Uh, I've, you know, I did like two or three episodes on The Last Jedi. I really like The Last Jedi. I'm a big fan of Ryan Johnson. Uh, Brick isn't like my favorite movie of all time, but I think it's really good. And Looper is like just a perfect storm of exactly what I want. I love Emily Blunt. I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I love sci-fi. Ryan Johnson combined all of these things, made a very compelling and fascinating story, and it wins me over. Uh, number three is The Hunt, foreign language film. Uh, so. It is subtitled, uh, which can be an issue and a barrier to entry for people. I hope it doesn't isn't. Uh, if if you haven't seen it, don't let that stop you because this is a very powerful film. 
uh, one that even today, you know, much bigger uh, pressing issue at the time that it came out. But even today, you know, this is something that's happening all the time. You know, when someone is accused of sexual misconduct uh, or rape, you know, uh, to the point where they have up until the point where they are convicted of doing uh, this crime, um, you know, how much vitriol should we feel toward them? You know, how vehement should our, should, should our response be? And I think there are arguments on both sides for, well, hey, look, if, if, you, if it's even a question, then, you know, clearly your behavior is unbecoming. But on the other side, uh, you know, if it if if we are if you're aware that it's that easy to take someone down, uh, there's gonna be at least one or two cases at some point where it's not real. It, it just that's just human nature, you know. You you want everyone to be good. You want everyone to 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 follow the rules and to, and to like drive within the lines, but they don't. They can't. It's just not how everyone is. And that sucks a lot of the times, but that's life, and it's just unfortunate. Number two, the penultimate film, or the penultimate film, the runner-up for best picture, uh, runner-up in two other categories tonight, which kind of gives it away, is Zero Dark Thirty. I think it is a phenomenal film. Uh, I love Catherine Bigelow. I think she's made some great movies. And Zero Dark Thirty is my favorite of them, if I'm being honest. But I think it... Uh, I mean, there's no but. I, I really... I don't have anything bad to say about this movie. Uh, I don't know. I just... I like The Imposter a little bit more. I think The Imposter is such a compelling story that it didn't need any flair. It didn't need any, uh, you know, help being a compelling story and yet what Bart Layton does in this movie elevates it over and over and over again the way he edits it the way it's directed the way it's composed the way it's constructed uh, you can see his abilities uh, further having improved when you if in in American animals which kind of employs the same techniques and in the imposter he I don't know, he just, he strikes gold, uh, you know, he strikes oil on his first swing somehow, like, this is the first movie he ever made, and I just think it's, it's, a, one of, it's one of my favorite documentaries of all time, uh, it, it, it really does kind of just, it just hits you over and over again, and you, th- you, you know, I remember watching it, and kind of just feeling myself just die a little bit because how could this situation happen and meeting the people that it happened to like I, I you know my heart goes out to them I, I feel it feels awful knowing that they went through such hardship but I don't I don't know I don't know how it how it came to be it, it seems ludicrous and yet you just you watch it happen the imposter is my best picture. The imposter. So, that is the 2012 Circle of Film Awards. It has been a long episode. I really 
really don't mean to keep you any longer. But as I said, a couple of statistical things. Um, this is the second time that the Best Picture winner has only won Best Picture. It happened in 2016 with The Handmaiden uh, only winning Best Picture. But Handmaiden had five nominations. The Impostor only got two, uh, which is the smallest amount of nominations for a Best Picture winner that I've ever had. Uh, additionally, um, no film was nominated more than six times, uh, generally. Uh, that is that is a pretty low number. It has been beaten uh, in 2014. The highest amount of nominations was five, the same in 2016. But every other year has had at least six, uh, as many as eight uh, at times. Um, <clears throat> furthermore, uh, <laughs> this makes six total nominations for Greta Gerwig. She has only won once for screenplay for Lady Bird. Um, I believe Alexander Desplat was nominated for Best Score this year uh, for his work on Moonrise Kingdom. That is his third nomination. He has one win. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio has now tallied three Oscar nominations. Is that true? What's his third for? Oh, Revenant, Wolf of Wall Street, and then... And Django, I was I was reading it as two supporting and one lead, but it is two lead and one supporting. It is his third nomination. Uh, he has one win. <clears throat> Who else do we have down here? Anybody else getting multiple nominations? Dun, 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 dun. Uh, Ennio Morricone, uh, nominated for Django and Chain. That is his second nomination without a win. Wes Anderson, nominated uh, twice for his uh, nominated for his second screenplay, has not won yet. Um. Anybody else before? Emily Blunt with two nominations now, no wins. Uh, Amy Adams with two nominations, no wins. Jennifer Lawrence with two nominations, no wins. And Denzel Washington with two nominations and no wins. Uh, so now <laughs> I've finally reached a point where, so I, I have a page on my spreadsheet, which is just the Circle of Film Awards and, and who won and the films and, and so forth. And then I had a second page where I tally you know, so for instance, it shows, you know, Gregor Wig nominated for director, lead, twice for supporting, twice for screenplay, won once, tallies total number of nominations and wins, going, so on and so forth. I had, when I did that the first time, I tallied all the nominations and wins between, um, um, what is it? Actually, I only tallied, I may have misspoke a touch. Where is yes? Yeah, so actually, only uh, I untallied the wins, only tallied nominations, and then added the wins as I went through the years, uh, which I regret. I wish I hadn't done that because then you know I couldn't really do the statistics back in 2013 because it was filtering in all the 2012 ones, so it was kind of hard to like parse them out in my head. So uh, when I add the wins for 2012 in here, they will adjust things a little bit. I guess I could actually do that now. Uh, so like Paul Thomas Anderson wins for uh, director so I can add him in there we can put in for best lead uh, Daniel Day Lewis who is now one nomination and one win for best supporting uh, we have Philip Seymour Hoffman one nomination and one win for best screenplay Mark Boll who now has one nomination and one win and best score. 
which goes to Henry Jackman, who has one nomination and one win. Uh, so updating that now. Uh, so everybody who won this year for anything uh, specified to a person uh, has uh, one nomination, one win, uh, which is well it doesn't really help anything. So uh, <laughs> no records being set. Still haven't had a single person hit two wins yet. Um, and only one person has made it to three nominations without winning anything, and that is Michael Fassbender. So hopefully his time will come. Uh, we will see. He is there often enough. That is it. Uh, that is it for the Circle Film Awards 2012. I have caught up on everything I've prepared for going backwards. Uh, in three months' time or thereabouts uh, will be the 2018 Circle of Film Awards. Hopefully I will have seen, if not everything, the vast majority of everything uh, that people are talking about from 2018. I Still a lot of movies left to even be released, so time to catch up on all those to come. And then, uh, next summer, I've mentioned this already, but I will go backward to the 2011 and 2010 Circle of Film Awards. And then once we get 2019, there will be the Decades Circle of Film Awards, where every winner from every year will be pitted against themselves in a decades-long uh, thing. So already I have taken the winners from 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 and pitted them against each other. Uh, so they are already ranked. I already know who's currently projected to win each of those things. And uh, we'll see what 2011, 2010, 2018, and 2019 bring us in the future. Yes, that does mean there will be 10 categories with 10 nominees each. And uh, I will not not talk about them because I will have all these episodes where they are talked about ad nauseum. Again, thank you for listening to this episode. This is it. I'm, I'm cutting it off right now. Uh, go enjoy the rest of your day and or night or whatever it is that, whatever time it is when you finish listening to this. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really do appreciate it. If you, if you want, listen to this all in one go, uh, you're a trooper and I couldn't be more pleased to have your support. Uh, thank you, and now the outro, courtesy of Meg Berquist. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like to listen to more episodes, you can find this podcast at circleoffilm.com or on iTunes. Don't forget to rate and review. If you'd like to follow Ryan on Twitter, you can find him at circleoffilm or contact him through email at circleoffilm at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash circlefilm for as little as eight cents an episode. Thank you again for listening, and have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be to say goodnight. I know she'll never leave me, even as she fades from view.